Welcome everyone to Science Society and of course um, well, a special welcome to um, to you Rafa because um, yeah as I said you offered uh, to do this on a regular basis in the future and uh, to kind of um, teach us more also in the future technical um, insights into the world of AI, how to use it in software development and um, the implications. So um, I think education around this matter is very important. That's why I was so happy that you offered this, um, especially for people that are kind of, you know, didn't have the the opportunity to learn this in school. Um, I think um, using AI in the future will be very important for everyone, for all fields. And if you know anyone that um, could take advantage of this or is maybe in a place or in a country where education is not very accessible, maybe also for women especially, um, around the world, please feel free to share these type of educational content, not just ours, of course, but in general, uh, where girls and women don't have access to education, especially. And um, that's why I thought um, this is wonderful. And to give a very brief overview, Rafa bin Ali, he um, is a senior developer with over 10 years experience. And um, he is um, living in Canada, and I think the rest he can he can tell us, and how he came to work in this field, and uh, take it from there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katerina. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here for listening to me. Uh, I'll just start from the slides. Uh, I put in a little bit about me. I have over 10 years experience in software development. Right now, my focus is on uh, technologies called Power Platform and SharePoint. Uh, I work as a cloud solutions architect and my focus is on AI like Azure Cognitive Services. Uh, in the future, my other interests are in the area of technical education, especially in the areas of special education where I'm building some products. Uh, but those are just an ideas in some phases. Uh, and one key takeaway from, for me at least, for all of this, from all of this is that pay, being in the AI space now, is that there's a lot of uh, questions surrounding will AI ever be able to be like humans in the sense of emotions, you know, feeling emotions and conveying emotions. And as I'm studying this and as I'm working with this, as I continue to evolve, I think it definitely will. There will come a point where machine will be able to replicate these emotions. So, I'll move on to the third slide. I'll start with just give you an overview of what I'll be talking about. 
as Katerina said, this is going to be a bi-weekly series. So this one is like an introduction kind of thing, as well as in the future based on the feedback gathered. I hope we can get more speakers as well as I'd like to also get into areas of how, I, how uh, existing AI models can be used in software development itself. Uh, so the agenda for today would be AI. What is AI? I think everybody already knows what AI is, so I'll probably skip over that. Uh, machine learning and deep learning, and I will start with some terminology to understand because we have a diverse audience over here, and I think everybody is familiar with ChatGPT. I think understanding some terminology behind ChatGPT itself will be useful for people who might be looking to integrate AI in terms of understanding the pricing structure further, right? So I think those some fundamentals I will discuss. Uh, and mostly in this, I will then focus on natural language processing. So I'll start with setting some baseline, like discuss DAL-E and GPT. I think everybody already knows, but DAL-E is a uh, language to text, uh, language to image model, basically, that is available via OpenAI's uh, interface, uh, sorry, APIs, only programmable access is available via API. Whereas ChatGPT itself is related to text generation. Uh, BERT is another one, uh, which is obviously by Google. Um, so the terminology there are, I think, in my opinion, there is four things that everyone should understand as AI becomes uh, ever pervasive in our lives, right? So the first one is tokens. Tokens in natural language processing is basically, you can think of tokens as individual words or even phrases that are separated by some symbol. So if you separate some words, uh, like if I take an example sentence, what I'm talking right now, uh, a space, a comma, a period would all be determining how many tokens my request or my prompt, as they say, will use in terms of uh, user interface uh, AI. The other one uh, to know and understand maybe is temperature. Uh, temperature in this uh, machine language parlance is basically refers to a parameter that controls the randomness in the output. Um, you can think of it in terms of, as an example, if you want your model to write, or if you want ChatGPT to write a fantasy novel, a sci-fi novel outline for you, you'd probably want the uh, temperature to be high. Uh, and a higher temperature basically leads to high creativity, whereas a lower temperature would uh, lead the model to be more conservative in its generation of text. 
The other one is patience. Uh, patience is refers to uh, the number of iterations basically that a model will use to continue training without seeing any improvement in the uh, overall performance. And this is used to prevent what is called overfitting. And I don't think I have mentioned that uh, in the slides, but I'll, get, I'll explain what overfitting is in terms of when you're training a model. Uh, uh, if you think about it, uh, like let's say you have an AI model that is uh, you're using it to read a bunch of IMDb movie reviews, right? And you want to classify it as whether the re and you're teaching the model basically to recognize a positive review from a negative review. So if the model learns to overfit the training data, right, what it would maybe start doing is it may start to memorize specific words on phrases within the review and then say, okay, just because this specific phrase was used, the review is positive. Whereas we as humans know that that is not, maybe not the case because the overall sentiment of the thing, uh, message might be uh, negative, right? So as an example, if I read something and it has the phrase superb acting, you know, superb acting, uh, that kind of conveys to me without the context that, okay, the review may be positive. Although if I state the following sentence, although the overall acting was superb, the overall story and the plot was weak. That definitely has a negative uh, review, right? So things like that uh, are uh, called overfitting and uh, patience is used to control that. This won't be practical for those who are using just chat GPT, but if you are looking to train an actual model, then it will be. The other terminology to understand is attention. Uh, attention basically allows a model to focus on specific uh, parts of the text uh, that you want to teach. And uh, uh, closely related term is temperature and attention. So. Uh, the temperature is like, uh, uh, you know how when a teacher is explaining something in school and the teacher might decide, okay, I want to concentrate on certain explanation more than the other because the certain part of what ha what is being explained is more uh, important to understand. Like if I, if someone is teaching about black hole in physics, right, what a black hole is, I might want to concentrate on certain area uh, more than I would concentrate on the other. Uh, so uh, that's what temperature basically controls. So it, uh, some of these uh, terminologies are uh, not necessary to actually understand other than token if you're using just chat GPT, but they are critical to understand if you're gonna use API in your maybe organizations.
because all of these things uh, determine the cost that you your organization will eventually pay to run model per uh, iteration, right? So I'll move on to slide four and start with NLP, natural language processing. Uh, as I was building these slides, this is such a vast area, you know, and I decided, okay, I have to, I cannot just cover everything, obviously. So in this one, because everybody knows what chat GPT is, so I will focus more on NLP, natural language processing, and then from there, I'll slide on to the skills necessary in the area of software development uh, in the next maybe even as close as five years, which isn't a lot of time. So natural language processing is basically a subfield of AI and the whole idea behind that is to uh, teach the machine how to process language as a human processes a language. That's, that's the central idea. Uh, just as the example that I gave in the story, right, about the negative review, although it was using positive words. So this is what this is about, basically, uh, to teach a machine how to generate text as closely as humans do. Uh, and then there's sentiment analysis, uh, as I just spoke about in that positive movie review. And the techniques used borrow from the fields of computer science, linguistics, and cognitive psychology. Uh, as I am studying more and more, I am beginning to realize that uh, psychology, uh, people who uh, know psychology, they're going to play a big, huge part in the coming days as AI starts to get more mature. Uh, in slide five, it's uh, I've given an example of NLP, which we all, all know as OpenAI's chat GPT, but other NLP technologies are Facebook Deep Text and uh, Microsoft AI for accessibility for differently abled people. Uh, they have a vision, uh, forgetting the name, but uh, so that is also based on NLP. And then I think we are all familiar with uh, Grammarly and that is obviously has been around for a while. And that is also an example of NLP. So if I move over uh, to slide number eight now, uh, six, sorry. I have discussed some language models in OpenAI. And the reason I'm mentioning these in the introductory session is because, uh, because everybody is now familiar with ChatGPT, so I think it is important to know uh, which models are being used in OpenAI. So OpenAI right now, all the models are non-deterministic. What this means is that in, uh, in easy uh, terms is that if I were to ask it a question, uh, the response that it gives uh, will be different each time I ask the same question, basically. So they are non-deterministic. Uh, and the four models in use in ChatGPT, uh, sorry, not ChatGPT, 
in OpenAI. ChatGPT is using the DaVinci one, but in OpenAI itself, available for us to call using software APIs is DaVinci, Curie, Babbage, and Ada. DaVinci model is the fastest one, and I think recently they have made uh, the OpenAI has actually made the ChatGPT API itself available open to be used directly from code. Uh, the DaVinci is the most fastest and uh, most complete because it has been trained uh, on 1.75 billion parameters. Um, Curie, on, on the other hand, can be a little bit faster than DaVinci uh, and it can, Curie is good in technical documents and if you want to summarize uh, technical document into bullet points, for example, extract key points from email. If you're getting an email and you route it through a workflow and you wanted to extract the key points from an email, so for example, you wanted to extract if there is any action item and maybe create a draft in Outlook based on that. So Curie would probably do a much faster job uh, than uh, DaVinci model. Babbage, on the other hand, is great for brainstorming. And the, as I discussed uh, earlier about the, the temperature of the thing, that higher the temperature. So Babbage, the internal, uh, how Babbage works, the temperature is very high. So you can use it to uh, do brainstorms. Um, again, this is not in chat GPT, but available via AI. So let's say if I'm building a product which I have built as a demo, but I cannot show it here because it's obviously just voice. But if you were building a product just as a brainstorming tool, you know, Babbage would probably be much work, uh, much better for you in terms of both the speed, uh, the level of creativity that you need for brainstorming as well as it will be cheaper uh, to run than the DaVinci. And then they have Ada. I have not really actually used Ada, but uh, as per OpenAI, they're saying that it is uh, the fastest model. And it is also in relation to creativity, it is close to Babbage. So, those are some of the things you might want to consider if you're implementing OpenAI APIs in your organization because all these things can lead to higher cost or lower cost as you uh, so yeah. The other one is Codex. This is slide seven. Uh, the other one is Codex, which is very uh, frightening for me at least is because it can now write code. Complete code can be written uh, using uh, the Codex APIs. And uh, according to my testing so far, it can write almost foolproof code in Python and JavaScript. Although uh, in my own area in .NET and PowerShell, it was not as uh, it, it was not as great. So, uh, but this is for now. It is definitely gonna get better as it continues to evolve and learn from more data sets. 
and then I have discussed two codex models. I'll just skip over that because uh, yeah, the, the, uh, people can read it, but I'll just skip over that for now. Um, in so now I will uh, get to the some other stuff for in terms of software development. And in slide nine, I think it is important to discuss how people can actually uh, enter into this, uh, especially software developers, if they're looking for an area uh, to diversify their own learning and provide more value to their existing clients. Uh, I think my, in my space, Microsoft Power Platform and Azure is a great area and that's my focus. But if people are just starting out and uh, they're developers or maybe learning or maybe in school right now, uh, a lot of work and actually I think most of the major work is being done on Python. So Python is a great uh, language to learn that I am also learning in my free time, Python. Uh, and then uh, in slide 10, I introduce a cloud service called Replicate. Replicate basically allows you to play with models other than what's being offered in OpenAI. Uh, for example, uh, one of the available models is converting video to uh, uh, converting audio to text uh, in all major languages. So you have that. Uh, another example that I saw on the model was adding colors to old videos, like, you know, old movies, the black and white movies, you can actually add colors and there are models to do that. A lot of apps like FaceApp, uh, FaceApp, uh, the features in FaceApp, they have models related to image processing as well. Um, in slide 11, I have shown you an example of how on the left side, there is a black and white movie. And on the right side, they have color added colors to it. So this is on uh, Replicate AI itself. And the API is very cheap. And on slide 12, which I was actually, uh, I am actually, uh, processing right now uh, for a product that I'm test in idea phases for a differently abled blind community is object detection. As you can see, it is basically detecting object on, and this is on replicate. So it identified a dog, it identified a cycle, right? So it will be kind of uh, very helpful if we can have like uh, like that stake that if blind people can wear glasses and it will identify a wall comes in or on the floor, uh, like, you know, there is some dug up and they have to detour. So those models are available. The reason I'm showing it certain things that you might need to do in your organization or as a hobby project are already available at a very cheap cost. And Replicate is a cloud provider for just one, uh, just one cloud provider among many others. Um, so obviously I think we already know in slide 13, I discussed some use cases like uh, we, uh, I think everyone probably aware that build chat bots and virtual assistants and 
other conversational API applications, AI applications, and uh, to analyze data and make predictions like sales forecasting, how many products I need to buy to reach a number of sales that can already be done, but this is via AI as well. And uh, to automate workflows and tasks such as scheduling appointments, managing email. I actually have another demo which uh, maybe we can do another session where I take uh, from my phone, I capture some text that I've written in a meeting as an example, and then AI automatically cl classifies all that into uh, action items and then take the appropriate action like creating a draft email that I can go back to my desk and refer to and uh, uh, review it and then send it out or create a task in my task list. So now the question is, how is software development going to change? Software development is going to change because a lot of things uh, that we rely on for developers and administrators, system administrators to do is actually going to be automated. Uh, it is already in the process of being automated, but it's gonna, the nature of these jobs are gonna change, like automation of routine tasks. AI will be able to debug code, it will be able to do QA, it will be able to do all kinds of deployments automatically, which it already does to certain extent, like we already have automated build pipelines. So uh, the human factor is probably going to be reduced very much in the coming maybe two, three years. Um, AI is definitely going to add uh, another dimension completely uh, when it comes to improved code quality in terms of how efficient a code can be. Right now when we have peer reviews, we are still limited by the knowledge of the people sitting, uh, reviewing, uh, you know, peer reviewing it. But AI, as you like think about it, is like, what, like the population of the whole world? <laughs> they're, they're learning from the population of the whole world, right? So yeah, we, we are definitely looking forward to improved code quality, which is obviously gonna uh, lead to different areas for developers to focus on rather than write code. They have to focus on different skills, which I'll get to in a little while. The biggest thing for me, at least, is right now is generating code. Uh, as I already discussed, uh, it can write a full website, complete website, and I think there are websites that let you do that uh, for a price that just create a website with everything, with all the content, and you don't really have to do anything. So now the question is, so if the code can be written by the machine, where does that leave me as a software developer, right? Like what skills do I need to focus on to make, to keep me relevant, to keep my job? And that's where I think the slide 15 focuses on is, uh, I, as a software developer, I think we need, I would need to focus more on problem solving and critical thinking. That is gonna be huge. Uh, if I can solve a problem, then I am in demand, basically. 
the need for data sciences is going to be big. Uh, I think we already know data sciences and big data is going to get big because data sciences is another thing that these models, data scientists, are, are the people who are actually going to be training the model. It is not I as a software developer who is going to be uh, training the model in most cases. Uh, it will be the data scientists who will need to figure out with cognitive psychologists how this thing is going to work because at the end of the day, we have to remember the central principle which is the, we are trying to have the machines mimic, mimic how humans learn how humans think basically. So, and as AI evolves, there's definitely going to be a need to for smart data architectures, for more uh, better algorithms, for better uh, data structures. Right now, like uh, in software development, we use linked uh, arrays a lot, right? So maybe we, in the future when the data, when we have to process massive amounts of data, there would be a need for better systems, better data structures. And systems thinking and the scalable and maintainable, yeah, that, that, is, that is important. That is gonna become more important as we go along and the human-centered design, uh, understanding the pain points and the user stories is gonna, uh, uh, add more more value to a software developer if if we know how to actually conduct focus stories uh, surveys uh, get input from people if we know how to ask questions so uh, that those skills are gonna be more important for software developers which dot uh, the focus of software developers at the point sometimes organizations, uh, are structured in such a way that software developers only get told what to do, but this skill would, will be central because if code can be written, I can be replaced. What I can, what the machine cannot replace right now is the ability to ask the right questions and to understand the motive behind everything. And this leads us to leads me to believe, and I think there's research on this as well that human-centered design is going to be critical and to top all of this and categorize all of this communication skills that is going to be foremost if I can ask the right questions if I can understand the motivation behind why a user says oh when I click this uh, when I when I have to click two three times I don't like that you know sir we all hear that we need to understand why the user says that and if we can understand that then yeah uh, that is uh, where software developer would need to know. Uh, and uh, to conclude this um, uh, introductory session, uh, where is AI headed? Uh, I think uh, AI is going to be uh, leading to more expert systems where computer systems will be able to mimic the decision-making abilities of a human in a domain completely. It is already doing that, but uh, with artificial neural networks, machines are gonna learn like a human brain learns. Like uh, for, uh, I'm exploring a model for a product is uh, based on CNN, which is convolutional uh, neural network basically. And 
in a nutshell that identifies images. Uh, for example, if I have sign language, right, I need to, I can uh, use those to create a product uh, which will translate my voice, what I'm saying right now, into sign language. Although it is not as simple as that because sign language also depends on mostly on facial gestures and your body language to convey uh, and the whole sentiment of a text. But yeah, this is where it's headed. Uh, reinforcement learning is a big one. Uh, reinforcement learning is, I think, borrowing from psychology, you know, how you teach a pet uh, and reward the pet for a good behavior or uh, you, uh, you know, uh, do not reward in the same way for a bad behavior and that's how the pet learns okay what's good what's allowed what's not allowed so this is what's being done in reinforcement learning and this is just one of the like a many hundred others things be, being done and uh yeah so basically ai the human psychology organizational psychology would be have read in the books is all being replicated into AI. And the, the more I work with this, the more I find myself disagreeing with people who say that machines will never be able to uh, understand and process emotions. Because I think there will come a point, not maybe in my lifetime, but there will come a point maybe in the next 100 years when AI will be able to understand emotion just as well or even better as humans do. So thank you very much, and I'll open the floor, uh, pass the mic to Katerina, maybe for question, answer, and feedback. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for giving us this <clears throat> introduction here today. And um, this uh, was really uh, wonderful. And there are a bunch of <clears throat> questions in the chat that I can maybe read out to you. Um, so the first question was by Denise. Um, she heard that ChatGP4 is launching soon. And what do you think? How far beyond the current um, one is it? And, and what's our take on, on the next one, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think ChatGPT4 is there. And I, from what I know, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's going to be trained on more parameters than Chat G, uh, this GPT3. Uh, but in order to completely answer your question, uh, it would definitely be better, but I'm going to have to do a little bit more research. But based on the number of parameters that they're saying that it will have, it will, uh, by, by rational conclusion, I can say it will definitely be an uh, improvement. However, one thing that I continue to see is, and I, that's the thing that I forgot to address in this is, uh, there are certain biases that are certain biases that continue to uh, exist in AI and uh, those ethical and moral cha moral change uh, challenges uh, will need to be uh, addressed. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, if anyone and you know, I know Eric, you here. Um, yeah, I have a question. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, uh, love the talk. I've been finding it super helpful coming from like scientific computing, uh, where software development, software engineering is not really taught for scientific computing. 
um, things like, hey, just make a GUI for me in Python for these parameters here, or I want to check, I want to scan through these hyperparameters. All of that syntax and kind of problematic things have been super useful, but there are situations where I've had to run it like three, four, five times, so it, it might not get the correct version of the Python that I need specifically. Um, in your experience, how, uh, like, could you comment on that? And then perhaps uh, which model you find most useful uh, for that kind of work? And then uh, I have a follow-up question about multimodal models. The surprising thing being if you add chain of reasoning or or whatever it's called with uh, multimodal, uh, a model with 700 million parameters is able to outperform ChatGPT. So uh, the visual component seems to be very critical here. So. Uh, if you had any insights or comments on that, that would be great as well. Thank you, and uh, amazing work. Thanks. Yeah, um, thanks for uh, for the question. So uh, the first one, yeah, that that happens. The libraries, and then you have to go back and forth. I have had that happen. Yes, and I think the solution to that is uh, if you search up on Google, what's called Docker. Docker is essentially a uh, a VM, like sort of like a virtual machine that you can install. It isolates the libraries and the version that your Node.js and your Python libraries need. So you can basically isolate them and uh, let's say one library uh, needs uh, version three and another project that you're doing needs version two. Uh, so they cannot coexist. So Docker will help you resolve them without making any changes to your existing machine because sometimes what happens is if you uh, do not isolate your machine itself you might start encountering issues uh, as an example once i was i installed a an update uh, for uh, sharepoint framework that's for sharepoint and uh, my powershell uh, uh, PowerShell, which is like a command, advanced command line interface got messed up. So yeah, Docker will help keep your machine that you use separate uh, from uh, any any kind of testing that you do. So in, uh, it wouldn't interfere with any other uh, configuration settings. Uh, does that answer your first question? Uh, Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, and the second one, uh, uh, I, uh, you were asking me for my opinion on something that has been uh, trained on more parameters than ChatGPT and whether it is, uh, it will be good or not. Is that correct? Uh, it's, a, it's a multi, uh, so I posted the link to the paper uh, as well. Um, it's a it's an archive paper um, entitled Multimodal Chain of Thought Reasoning and Language Models, and they showed that uh, this model that had less than a billion parameters outperformed state-of-the-art GPT 3.5 by 16 percentage points on, for I example, see. the Science QA benchmark. For, for me, that's specifically critical because when I'm trying to implement something scientific in a computing kind of fashion i've noticed that chat gpt sometimes misunderstands and uh the, there are there are various ways of of finding uh, those problems but you have to be kind of diligent 
knowing that going into it, you're almost uh, kind of trusting but verifying. So everything that you get, you're still doing edge case testing. Um, so, um, but this multimodal model, which is able to include like visual data, so diagrams or graphs, it's able to use that with the LLM in this new kind of hybrid fashion that reduces the computation, uh, 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 computing resources required to achieve similar results uh, so that's like super fascinating because i think a huge thing happened with smartphones when we didn't need to go to the cloud anymore for voice it can now be run locally because the model was compressed and so on so this seems to be like a, a another kind of um element of that sort and um with respect to software engineering or software development um I'm thinking, okay, there's always a visual component. There's like some sort of graph, there's some abstract concept and that helps mm. to that process. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to use these models uh, and mm. the code for this particular model is available along with the weights, which was uh, surprising. I don't know if you kept up with the recent stuff, but apparently GPT 3.5 weights were leaked on the internet. So anyone with enough computing can perhaps run it now themselves. Yeah, and uh, that's uh, great to know. I'm not familiar with this exact paper that you're mentioning, but uh, in terms of software development, yes, uh, improvements will be continue to come as uh, all these models now in public domain are actually learning from, from us, right? Even Chad GPT is actually learning from us. And uh, uh, but if you would like to check out these models, if you have the source code as well as the compressed form of the model, I would recommend you check out Replicate, which is a cloud API provider that actually lets you uh, deploy your own models and train them in the cloud. Uh, you have to go through an approval process to have your models there, but that's what it's there unless you have your own machine that is powerful enough to do that then uh, but uh, i have explored replicate and it is very cheap actually uh, to okay thank you that. yeah i really yeah. appreciate that i'm looking at it right now machine learning doesn't need to be so hard run models in the cloud at scale so thank you for that reference yeah no problem and uh, yeah machine learning is actually uh, basically aut automation of uh, how human thinks, right? So uh, for people like data scientists and big data geeks and all those are gonna, uh, all those fields are gonna pick up more, more important as time comes along, especially cognitive psychologists. That's gonna, because all, as I'm, as I'm doing this, I realized that whatever behavioral psychology organizational psychology and all that i'm not a student of psychology but i know a little bit uh, to understand that uh, whatever has been learned how humans function from uh, from being born to ultimately you know that's being replicated in in the machine now and yeah it is going to get better so hopefully yeah that answers your question yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, the work that I do specifically is uh, biotech. So ha coming at it from a physics perspective, 
uh, I found these uh, tools to be super useful. Do you have any, um, have you been keeping metrics of uh, how much code perhaps in the last year has been generated by you compared to uh, by your prompts for the machine? I know one uh, researcher, Karpathy, uh, he mentioned something like he estimates that 80% of his code was written by the machines in the last year, which is uh, crazy, scary, and awesome at the same time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, more and more code. No, I don't have any stats on, on my thing because uh, my uh, I tried uh, .NET and PowerShell code and uh, this was about, uh, I think, a month ago. And uh, the, the PowerShell, I asked us, hey, can you tell me how to write a hash table in PowerShell? And it gave me a nonsense syntax. So basically, uh, right now, from what I can see, it can write code good it can write a complete program excellent but only in python and javascript at the at the moment but it's gonna get better and it's gonna get to a point soon where it will be able to write in net as well yeah thank you so much uh, we have uh, more questions in the chat um uh, so um the, the Hippie Paresh asked, what was the name of the Vision Assist Microsoft NLP you mentioned? Um, yeah, I'm going to have to uh, think about that because I read about it while I was doing initial research in my uh, for which product I should do for the differently abled and then ultimately I decided on the sign language one. But there is, I think it's called Microsoft Vision something. So if you type it up on Google, Microsoft Vision, uh, you would probably, it would lead you to the right place that you're looking for. Okay, so yeah, maybe if um, he can just reach out to you also if he has more questions. Um, then, um, the next one is uh, speaking of ChatGTP, as you have mentioned, it can generate human-like conversations, which means there's also possibility that it could offend you or make you feel uncomfortable. What do you think the precautions are that should be taken or um, should we just simply be aware of, um, of them? Yeah, that's that's actually a good, excellent question, and that actually leads us into that ethical discussion right now. From my understanding so far, uh, most of the content that ChatGPT uh, says it won't write, uh, it considers offensive, is actually built via programming. It is not coming in from its own recognition that something may be offensive to a human being. Right, because it, it doesn't know, because a lot of these ethics and moral questions about humanity depend on the context as well. So uh, if I ask it to write something offensive, that is basically a, uh, as far as my understanding goes, and uh, I think it is correct to a certain extent that that limitation has been superficially imposed as in the programming itself and the model itself is capable of being offensive. It's just that programmers have uh, uh, I told it to not generate it. So there is a possibility that that can happen too, yes. Yeah, um, thank you for that. And um, the next question is, 
Um, how is generated code verified and validated? So how do you <clears throat> um, determine correctness, for example? Yeah, so for a code to be uh, correct, it needs to pass different benchmarks. The first one is, does it, is the syntax correct, which can be uh, uh, checked at compile time. The other thing is how efficient the code is. And because we are using a lot of uh, high level uh, languages now, and we no longer use low level languages where this was a concern, at least in my field of .NET. Uh, other than elementary knowledge that when to use an array list versus when to use a, was called a generic collection, or where do I used a typed array, uh, array list over an array, those kind of questions I should know, but uh, 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 Katrina, can you, sorry, I, I forgot the question a little bit as I was, <laughs> can you repeat the question uh, for me? The, uh, what was that? Um, yeah, it's, it's how do you determine um, that, a co that this code, right, for right. example, is correct and what are, right. you know? How yeah, so uh, there's uh, these, uh, the syntax and then there is the most efficient algorithm data structure to use uh, as an example let's say i if i were a very basic example that that i see happen a lot like uh, uh, the date the date variable right uh, uh, or even a string or an integer uh, how to uh, actually whether if i if i say the number one now I could either store it as a string or I could store it as, a, as an integer. I've always thought that if I were to store one for calculation, then I'd store it as an integer. But if I were to store it as part of maybe an employee number field, then I would much better off using a string because uh, there will be other strings as part of that number. But again, so those things uh, AI will be able to do, which a lot of stuff happens in peer review, stuff like that and uh, that will need to be sorted out. Uh, for example, if uh, now employee number, if, if my employee number is EMP01 stored as a string and someone is EMP11 as a string, which ones, uh, and if I were to have it sorted for me, uh, in this case, it might not be uh, different, but if, if I were to just take uh, numbers, right, it will, a string comparison to an integer will be different. So those things, AI will be automatically able to do that we do in code reviews. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, um, and then the next question in the chat was, um, let me scroll back up, it always goes back down. So, um, AI design is going to benefit disabled people become more empowered, but what jobs do you think will be available to them to them in the near future due to this development? To the differently able people? Yeah, like people disabled people and probably other, you know, people that had a hard time getting jobs for now. 
yeah and i think it is going to open up like uh, it is going to lead to more inclusive societies and the reason i say this is because ultimately from what i'm seeing is uh, all the technical stuff can be handled by the machine itself right now what we need is those skills communication skills the ability to ask the right questions the ability to empathize with someone right uh, the ability to understand why a user is saying that okay it takes him or her three clicks and why they're not satisfied with that though that thing the machine at least until now wouldn't won't be able to understand the more those motivations and yeah i mean it opens up opportunities definitely for differently abled because even though they they are uh, they are definitely able right so i have seen uh, i have spoken interacted with them and uh, some of them have excellent excellent communication skills and uh, yeah, they, they, uh, they definitely they, they, they would lead to more inclusive opportunities for them, for sure. That's for sure. At least that's the hope. Because ultimately, see, AI is being driven by human needs and instincts. So, but that's a separate, separate topic. So, yeah, uh, I hope that uh, that's my hope. And that's where it, it, would, it should go. That's an excellent... Um question Deborah thanks for uh, and uh, que uh, uh, asking that question um, uh, I, guess, I guess as a follow-up to what Deborah asked uh, if uh, you know AIs uh, could be useful for people who are disabled um, would employers know if uh, their applicant pool is using AI, and would I mean, like, do would uh, would that be something that empl employers would be looking out for, or like, is this you know, it's a whole new ball game with AI. So, like, um, yeah, you know what I'm trying to get at, uh, uh, Rafi? Yeah, I I think I know uh, what you're saying, and. Uh, See, I think there is an underlying assumption in that, that uh, and I think that is a correct assumption that we are thinking of AI as something that is something to stay away from, uh, which it's not, right? It's a tool, it's gonna be here to stay. So if an employer is actually watching out, hey, okay, is that guy uh, using AI to answer my question, that will not be the right approach in my opinion. At least, if not in the next five years, then at least in the next 50 years that would need to change. Uh, I was actually watching a video from New York City Public Education and that's what they were saying that uh, uh, a lot of people are talking about plagiarism and all that. Well, plagiarism in its current sense doesn't even make sense on chat GBT because it's not being taken from anywhere right? it's not being copied from anywhere it's generated for me but yeah that's a definition that will change but then again AI is a tool it's here to stay um, whether someone likes it or not and uh, uh, yeah and it, it people should make an effort to uh, make sure that if some if someone is using ai to generate something that's not a bad thing that will eventually in my opinion lead to that person to focus more on the areas that ai cannot replicate for human beings right so yeah i actually wow. have a follow-up um to um my question had earlier because uh, like i i looked in google um search and i just typed uh 
uh, Microsoft Vision, like like you said. But uh, all that comes up is uh, Visio, which I'm I'm familiar with Visio. It's like a, a decision decision tree type of uh, uh, visual, uh, you know, diagramming. Uh, you know, graphic. Program. Yeah. But is it, uh, what else can I, I like put in the search parameter? I will, you know, uh, I will uh, look it up again and I will get back to you with the exact name and the uh, technology uh, with that. Yeah, I probably should have made a note of that, but I have forgotten because it was a few months ago that I checked this, but I will get back to you definitely on this. Okay, thank you. Well, I, I can't say enough of how impressive uh, you are. Uh, uh, so please keep up the good work. My 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 question uh, would be: Is it possible? Do you think that uh, these types of platforms, uh, like uh, uh, even like GI uh, Git Copilot or these types of things, will ever be uh, able to sort of give themselves their own parameters like 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 i just feel as though trying to to keep these things in in control is 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 almost going to be impossible with 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 how they are and without being able to have them sort of self-police themselves uh we're, we're going to be at a a, a steep hill <laughs> that's yeah no uh, so my in short my answer is yes and the reason i say yes is because uh if I go back to that topic of overfitting that I was talking about, that, that's precisely one of the things that it watches for, right? Like if I take an example of, if let's say if you're building, uh, uh, let's say a model to predict housing prices, right? And you give it certain parameters, okay, this should be the number of rooms and the restroom should be this and, you know. Uh, so the model is gonna start learning, okay, um, maybe what it could would start doing is okay so it learns okay this neighborhood this is the price but that's not what we are training the model to do we are training the model to actually understand the underlying patterns right the motivation behind it so it can actually uh give you the right pricing based on a new parameter that for example you come up with how far a school is from how uh, from the house or how far is the grocery store from the house? So that's those are the new parameters. So I definitely think that, uh, yeah, that's there will come a point where this will happen that it will be able to generate its own parameters as well, because that that's what we are training it for it to do, right? We're training for it to actually underline, uh, understand the underlying patterns, uh, just as a human being does. Well, thank goodness. Uh the next question I would have is, do, do you think that, I heard somewhere that it will actually be able to do jobs such as uh, judges and lawyers even better than they could. Do you think that it would ever be able uh, to be released into the political realm where it would, you know, give the power, just as it's giving, you know, the layman the power to code, uh, regular citizens the power to legislate? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, technically, yes, it. I think uh, even ChatGPT can actually do that. And as I, I think discussed, that uh, a lot of these limitations are going to be imposed by humans themselves. So, uh, technically, yes. Whether 
the legislation and the regulations drafted in areas like Congress or other legislative bodies actually allow for that to happen as separate? And um, I don't know about that, but technically, yes. Do you think that there is already some sort of intelligence doing these types of things? I, I am just curious about it because uh, I, don't I just... Know. You don't know. It's I, I, I very don't interesting know. times we're in. Yeah. So maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm not aware if it's being done. Yeah. Thank you for the questions. The I have three more raised hands. Um, I'm trying to pull people up. Sometimes it works. Sometimes does it work now? Oh, perfect. Okay. So, um, is, do you still have time? I know you have also work to do, but... Yes, uh, of course, yes. It's Sunday, so yeah, no problem. Okay, perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, please go ahead and PTR order everyone and ask your question. Thank you. Um, am I next? Yeah. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if... Uh... You are. Okay. Great. Hi, guys. Hi, uh, Rafe. I, I know that we've spoken before. Good to see you again. Um, and Ayo, good to see you. Um, so I've been listening for a couple of minutes and I have interests in artificial intelligence more generally and more broadly around just software development. And my question kind of, you know, looks ahead into what other people would call, I guess, deterministic um, artificial intelligence models like symbolic AI and you know relative to sort of the probabilistic um, models we have with LLMs I'm wondering um, you know should we expect with a you know with some level of certainty or, or, or reasonability that symbolic AI models would have the sort of trajectory that we're already seeing with um, you know um, you know with the generative models and and should we expect that there would be some relationship with category theory. For those of you um, who aren't mathematicians, category theory is a sort of branch of um, mathematics that's really exciting. Um, you know, the, the study of abstract uh, structures and relationships. Um, you know, you can look at functors and, and um, you know, functional programming if you're interested in that. But, um, you know, I, I'm really interested in, in the relationship between um, symbolic AI and category theory and whether or not you guys see a future where you know that takes center stage because i know that we can someone was talking um you know about politics and stuff like that i'm wondering if you know symbolic ai with the ability to perform tasks such as reasoning and and, and planning and decision making um if that has you know a future in the near term and if we can expect um you know um category theory to have center stage there thank you uh thanks mo for uh, that question uh so a lot of terms that you have uh, raised from mathematical theory uh that's not my field so if you can just clarify uh, with symbolic ai and category with an example that will help me understand the uh question better but uh, uh i yeah so let's see maybe i can answer but that is uh, not my uh, field so i don't think i will be the right person to address that 
but if you clarify maybe i can provide some insight uh, on that so um symbolic ai is just you know a num one of you know a number of fields in in artificial intelligence just like generative ai is and um you know it focuses on sort of um you know the development of algorithms that can that use um symbolic logic or or um you know formal logic or sentiential logic to sort of manipulate um uh you know those symbols to to perform tasks as i said such as um you know decision making and planning and stuff and the mathematical models that it uses you know just like uh, boolean logic like um you know p or p and not p or whatever um, it uses those sorts of mathematical models to be able to manipulate uh, uh, knowledge. And category theory um, is a branch of mathematics um, which deals with the relationships of abstract structures. It's a really advanced and, and really elite, um, you know, field of mathematics. And, um, you know, very, very little research has actually been done because of how new it is um, relative to, I guess, you know, algebra or calculus. So I'm just wondering, um, you know, because of how interconnected these fields are in terms of, you know, symbolic logic and the advances that we're making in terms of generative AI models, when or if there's going to be a trend towards symbolic AI and, you know, whether or not category theory is going to be, you know, at the center of that trend. I'm not sure if anyone's, um, you know, an expert in mathematics or physics. I think IO has a background in that field. So yeah, in terms of the Boolean logic uh, that you mentioned and the logical operations and or yes, I mean, those are uh, key patterns. So again, as because I'm not a student of mathematics and physics, so I wouldn't be able to answer as accurately as uh, uh, this question should be answered because that's an excellent question. But in uh, it, it like in my opinion, right from what I'm seeing, uh, AI will. AI will even be able to process emotions like a human being does or more than that from what I'm seeing uh, and visualizing. So, and what you have mentioned about uh, the logical operations and from what I know about the logical operations as we use in computer uh, uh, in programming, uh, that's already being used. I mean, that's old school, right? So why not? But again, because right, the, right, right. Uh, what I'm talking about is, you know, a step change from where we are in terms of large language models to, for example, you know, telling an AI to book you the cheapest hotel in Montenegro, um, you know, for a duration of three weeks, right? Being able to actually have, um, you know, operations that it performs rather than communication, if, if that makes sense. So, yeah. More. And and I think that is uh, already being uh, done. That's that's what they're doing uh, to train the model. Like if you go back to my example, I gave about predicting housing prices, right? Uh, that's that's uh, that's uh, and that's where the overfitting comes in to train the model to uh, be able to recognize what you have uh, just mentioned. But again, the science behind it. Uh, is different from what we need for software development so I wouldn't be the right person but maybe if someone else on the stage has information they feel yeah, free to chime in. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, VTR, please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, sorry to cut uh, or speak in between. Yeah, more to most question, category theory is going to get us there. Answer is clear. Answer is no. Because there is also the uh, aspect of AI, which is common sense understanding, which uh, even with symbolic AI, you can't capture what's not written in, in, in a conversation where, <clears throat> for example, I say Mary and Susan are mothers. There is nothing explicitly mentioned in that small sentence that, uh, you know, they cannot be mothers of each other, right? This is already understood by the knowledge of biology, how culture works, how our human, um, you know, um, society works and that sort of a thing. And it's not written explicitly. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I mean, seems like we in AI tend to go from one buzzword thing to another. I don't know how category theory uh, applies, uh, maybe making these uh, clusterings more efficient or categorization more efficiently, but uh, I would say the brain works slightly differently in, in terms of how it uh, gets information, like you know um, how the processes in the brain are uh, synchronous and you know they're able to handle uh, so, so synchronous processing. I'm not saying um, message passing which is in the brain seems to be asynchronous uh, as with these systems as well but uh, yeah there has to be some architectural change uh, in 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 the hardwares we use because we are limited by binary zeros and ones uh, no matter what we do at the high level so it's not uh, I, I don't know if i answered your question or went on a total different tangent but uh, uh, that's some of my thoughts regarding that. No, I really do appreciate, um, you know, the mention of common sense understanding in relation to category theory. Um, it's it's a nuanced and definitely um, intelligent perspective to be able to identify that, you know, category theory doesn't doesn't solve for common sense understanding. So I do appreciate that. Thank you. So uh, one thing, uh, one thing that I'd like to add, and thank you for clarification a little bit, uh, from based on the example that you gave about that mother thing, right? Uh, uh, yes, and the, that's that's what is being done right now. Like uh, earlier on, I gave the example of that movie review, right? So, if a movie review were to say, uh, if 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 the model learned that, okay, if superb acting as a phrase appears in the review. We have to teach the model to recognize that if the if I say the sentence, although the overall acting group was superb, comma the overall story and the plot was weak, so that's a negative review, right? And so, so that, that that's that's what the ultimate aim for all of this model training is that it the model should be able to understand the context just uh, like a human human brain does, and that's where all the training is headed. Yeah, but Rafa, that's I totally get that uh, people in this community tend to think that everything could be modeled trained, uh, but the uh, the the real the reality is the world in itself like has endless edge cases, and so you cannot uh, train for any situation happening in the real world. Like for example, like I give you an example, right? And this example I always give and. Sorry, guys, if you've heard this before, is uh, a, a car that's driving and I'm driving the car and there is a big leaf on the road. Now, I don't know, need to go a million times over the leaf to know it's harmless, 
but with the rock i know it's harmful like you know it's gonna it's gonna have some issues with my tires or stuff like that um you can imagine robots like that uh, take care of the elderly so should they be trained like a million times that fall dropping an individual hurts them uh, and at what angle at what you know what height because i don't want my grandpa be dropped a million times to for them to get oh that's uh, uh, it harms a human being so what i'm trying to get at is model training is good for a lot of cases but it's it it won't cover all the cases like when we say oh it's going to know emotions and and other stuff i i i don't like that's my opinion but yeah i, I don't know how we're going to get there is is my question actually yeah no thank you thank well, you well well i mean there's there's a couple solutions to this right one is virtual reality simulation where your real grandpa doesn't get dropped and a fake grandpa gets dropped and then the computer learns from that um, and humans put in basic parameters into that virtual reality just like you would in the video game that you play so that's one option and another i think you're i think you're thinking quite too literally about each instance of potential right like each like a leaf or is it a rock right and the, the reality is an ai should not be having descriptions and individual descriptions for each tiny possible parameter and instead should have some generalization built into it so it doesn't need to figure out whether it's a leaf or or not specifically and say oh leaf looked it up in my database that is a leaf here's what i do in leaf instances it says it's small it has the color of a natural object it does not look metallic aka it's probably not metal probably won't puncture the tire and it doesn't need to tell you it's a leaf at all it just needs to tell you it's got parameters that make it look harmless and then i, I mean i imagine of course it could go to the next step and say it's a leaf but it doesn't need to have database of every possible object in it and every possible relation of each object just rather a very sophisticated framework, which is which is exactly what humans have. Right? Like we, yeah. we don't actually know if we leave. Maybe it's a knife on the ground. Yeah, exactly. I I don't think the brain just builds the model of the world entire in its entirety, because uh, that seems to be the shortcut, basically. To because um, we are not computing everything in our space. Like we have something like object permanence. Like if uh, you see a bicycle and you know, the bicycle gets broken into two, it's still a bicycle to you, right? Uh, so there are some interesting things there going on, which uh, I think we haven't, I, I haven't seen, I mean, I'm beginning to see some research around, but uh, I don't know if we uh, are there yet. Yeah, yeah for sure. And so, so all I would say is in the bicycle example, I think what the issue is right now is artificial intelligence models don't have uh, 3D aspects of the world typically right they're not built to to kind of view the world in 3d and therefore they're 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 not they're falling short of to the amount of perspective in which they can take something so you may show it a bike picture and say yeah it's a bike clearly and then cut the bike in half and show it each halves and it'll say uh you know it'll just be get confused or it'll say it's a unicycle or something crazy that no human would get wrong. But the reason is it just doesn't have that aspect of the world of, of being 3D yes. models. Yeah, one last thing I wanna say first is the simulation part is 
even with simulation, we fall short of actually capturing the entire world because the real world is the real world. And the simulation is just one aspect of it. So that's the problem. And one last thing I would say is maybe we need to rethink about how software's systems are designed because you know, if you look at biological systems like the brain, the more complex they get, the more robust they get. Like you, it's, it's difficult to fool these systems. Whereas with software, it's opposite. Like if a, a thousand lines of code is better than 10,000 lines of code, because with more complexity comes, it's, it's, it's difficult. Like things can go wrong, one part of the software and the other, and you won't know. And uh, so yeah, that, that's a fundamental issue there too but anyways i would yeah. i would definitely agree with that well uh, regarding the hardware um, issue that you addressed um or that was addressed before uh, i think uh, neuromorphic devices will um go a long way we had a few guest speakers um from you know basic research level how to make basically artificial synapses and have like very similar type of learning processes like in the synapse happen to replicate that in, in neuromorphic devices and then we had a couple of IBM researchers from Switzerland here that talked about it and the important thing is that it's it's not necessarily a binary um, process anymore which is not just um, that it improves basically, I guess, intelligent generalization, but also the processing of information is way cheaper and can be scaled um, better. That's that's another issue, right? It would be way too expensive right now. Uh, we don't have enough resources so that everyone has their own, uh, let's say, um, AI robot and, and metaverse and all this stuff with the current hardware system we just don't have enough resources and also electricity needs for those devices are really high if you would like to scale it to a human type of generalized processing not the specialized but the general it would be way too expensive um, and cost too much energy so those are probably the way to go and I know they they have been they have been making cameras uh, with neuromorphic um, ministers in there um, that work pretty well but um, yeah I think that it hits the large market it will still take a while but I think that would be the way to go I think we should try to mimic the types of uh, uh, things that the brain does like there's different areas of the brain that does different things uh, and somehow be able to make it to where they can work together. I don't know. I just coming from a layman, that seems to be the best thing. It's like we have the 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 best invention ever. It's the human brain. Let's just like put that in a box. <laughs> yeah, that that strikes me as being potentially very inefficient. But do you mind if I ask? I just I don't know if anyone else is up. Uh, Katarina, is someone else up ahead of me? Um, yeah. Mando, I think, had a question, and then, and then it's your turn. Thank you for being patient. So, my question is mostly regarding how things are being evolving. Like, 
do you think this is going to be more of a cookie cutter one cookie cutter approach for most of the solutions because uh, by by these training models are uh, going to be trained with existing data and it's the same approach that is going to be uh, pushed by uh, the ai bot um, and so there's not going to be a long like scalability is going to be a problem customize customizability is going to be a problem uh, because of this like for example you know when we give coding example up like one specific is going to always try to push for a particular type of architecture because it doesn't have the full context or understanding of what that particular project might need simplicity might be one or it might be the culture it might be the the support of uh, the engineers they have and their uh, experience level where they won't be able to handle a, uh, a complicated architecture for example yeah. right so it might tend to move more towards a one single cookie cutter approach going forward right and i think that's one of the questions i, I had and uh, will it uh, and also will there be a in future will there be more safeguards for by companies for the ip going forward because if we are basically replacing ourselves by uh, having one efficient worker and uh, our secret sauce people will try to safeguard their secret sauce with these training models and they might be lawsuits saying that hey i have designed this way of doing things and uh, why is this ai model sharing that uh, to my competitors so do you see all those aspects coming in so um yeah that's a great question and i think the overall motivation behind this is to make sure that uh, uh, the cookie cutter is approach is not followed right so uh, the models are actually trained on a data so that they can be uh, sorry about some noise so that they can be uh, actually they can understand the underlying patterns right just as you said uh, whether uh, uh, it should be a simple system or whether it should be a complex and the scalability. So uh, the models are actually trained and that's where overfitting uh, comes in, right? So to train them so they can understand the motivation and the pattern and how that thing is being made. So yeah, I mean, the problems you have raised are there, but I don't see why some smart people will not be able to come up with a uh, solution right uh, maybe not today but definitely in the next two three years we'll see improvements regarding the privacy of data what do you think so uh, in, in regarding the first question also right let's say uh, for for microsoft right there is a way there's a cultural values there's some leadership principles all those aspects happen when you are let's say building a presentation or a powerpoint um, i doubt ai is gonna be customizable to that level where it will know the cultural aspects and stuff like that no i think i think it will because you know uh maybe not today but like like you know think about it if you go back 300 years and you told someone you know like all of us will be talking like this would anybody have believed any 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 this like social media and talking clubhouse nobody would have right so I mean, yeah, it's gonna be there ultimately. I I see no reason why it wouldn't. Um, I have a question. It's kind of in line with. Uh, well, I think I think I think we've got oh, an order though here. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, you're welcome to take my spot. Let you guys go. Please go ahead. 
Yeah, Mando okay. and I did our time. Okay. Um, all right. I'll, well, I'll I'll just say what I was going to say quickly. Um, <clears throat> so you, you know, I think uh, Rafael, uh, w- one thing that you brought up that's that's really um, is very timely and and going to be continuing to be as this as this develops like a major cultural impact is this whole ordeal that you see in the news about teachers being concerned about it writing essays. Um, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, I don't know if employers care that their employees are using it. I imagine most probably don't if they're doing the right thing. Some probably do for unknown reasons. Um, But I think that's going to really be be seen as in the academic area and, and others as kind of looking back you know, 10 years from now as us looking back on the era before calculators were around, right? And and looking back and saying, well, you know, why would we not use AI to write an essay? Like how silly would you have to be to sit down and type out an entire essay? Um, and I think it would just be akin to us saying how silly it would be to um, you know, run on a bunch of mathematics or, or you know, do some, some modeling or whatever it may be without the use of a, of a calculator. Like, yeah, it can be done. It's massively inefficient. It's not what the human mind is made for. And I think that that, that sphere of tools that displace what the human mind is had at one point being seen to be used for to, you know, moving on to something else is going to continue to expand. And I, there's no doubt in my mind that essay writing and everything that can stem from that, solving problems, answering questions, um, will be replicable by, by a computer. Um, and so I guess the, the question is, you know, where is the balance there, right? Because there'll be, in my view, as this progresses, especially in the professional domain, so again, getting out of school you now, and into kind of the, the, the job market, the professional domain, there will definitely be um, the need for humans, a need for experts. But someone said it really, really well in a Clubhouse like a few weeks ago. Uh, they were just kind of talking, they're an expert or anything, but they, they had this idea of an AI whisperer. And I was like, oh, that's, that's right. That's exactly right. Like that is what I see um, the future of the job market being is effectively AI whispers. Like you're, you're not there to create the content for the most part, right? Very, very little content need to be created by a, by a human, but you're there to whisper to the AI, meaning you're there to like whoever's the best at getting the AI to do what it needs to do, do it well, is really going to reign supreme. And I think the thing is that doesn't mean you could just kind of just do that with a with a high school degree, like you're going to need to be an expert because in order to train, in order to whisper to the AI about some advanced subject, some professional field, you will need to be a, an expert yourself in it, right? So this is what the question is, you know, where do you think the balance is between allowing AI to become the calculator and do things for us that will allow us to instead be maybe giving it prompts around what we want to do? And I would I would argue that that goes really down ultimately to values and what we value. Um, and then actually kind of developing professionals and the need for those professionals um, to, to work with the AIs and the level of expertise that they'll need in order to do so. Yeah, 
that's uh, that's a great point and i think a lot of these limitations will be placed not on ai itself but uh, uh, the program programmable part of ai right so if a model knows how to like even in chat gpt it does know uh, it can generate content content that is offensive right but it is us as software developers who have imposed this limitation on the model to not generate that content if on uh, upon request uh, so yeah i mean that's a big question, but yeah, so that's that's my opinion that uh, balance will need to be struck by humans uh, as to societal uh, acceptance of certain things, whether we want machine to take over that pattern or whether we would much prefer for a human being. For example, if, uh, if AI can diagnose my illnesses completely, uh, there might be a bias in me that I would prefer to have a second opinion from a medical doctor who is a person, right? So yeah, I think those limitations would need to be imposed and uh, by human, by what society at that point in time uh, thinks should be the limitation. Yeah, great, thanks. I think, um, I think in the situation that you mentioned, um, what is um, something that people have a concern about is um, uh, intelligence of the intelligent machine. Um, it operating like a black box. And if it, so if it was to make a diagnosis, um, I wouldn't see why anybody would actually want to see a, an actual physician to ensure um, what it came up with was actually accurate. I think the whole legal it, uh, it wouldn't be like for me at least right and uh, like for me at least sorry I didn't mean to cut off but for me at least I mean I might prefer it so again it, it will be a human preference some people might not some people may who, who knows like there's so many people on the planet right and everyone thinks differently so I was going to say this there right like if a doctor uh, tries to use a prescription he has a sense of uh, uh, fear that if things go wrong uh, this patient might get uh, might have some uh, like consequences and AI might not have that kind of a uh, seriousness even if you train it and also there is who's gonna be legally held responsible if things go wrong in healthcare yeah, I, I think that's a great, great uh, note there, Mondo, because what, what I've heard in the medical community around the use of artificial intelligence is that they really don't want it doing anything serious, like a diagnosis of a disease on its own. It would always need to be paired with a doctor, at least for the foreseeable future. And in large part, it is because of this liability aspect, like even if the patient doesn't care, the medical community um and perhaps the regulations, I'm not sure if it dives that deep, but at least the medical community and their lawyers are saying, you know, you really need like a human to get intervened there. I, I do, I do think, yes. the I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I do think eventually that humans will humans will uh, not not maybe not anytime soon in the you know next few years, but in the next couple of decades, I imagine that human doctors will uh, 
have a hard time refuting the AI, but we'll see. I have a quick question, uh, if there's anyone else, otherwise, uh, who wants to ask? Well, I think Merck wanted to ask something, right? Yeah, I had a, had a question, but uh, feel free, I'll, I can go after you. So in terms of like innovation, uh, like creativity and innovation on the AI side, I uh, looking at like, uh, if I'm, I'm looking this more on a crowd theory perspective, let's say everyone has an AI bot and the AI uh, or the AI engine or uh, this has much more advanced level where will it have limitations on creating ideas altogether, right? Like let's say I have an AI bot, which will it be able to build um, uh, what do you envision a new startup idea and then even build it because it has the code or, or, or it has the option like it has the, the keys now or uh, levers to build a project as well but then that same AI same machine learning model is there with everyone else as well uh, so I feel like I'm not sure how this will even work like is everyone gonna use AI for even creativity purposes of building ideas or that's something where it's still going to be uh, the secret sauce of innovators. Otherwise, it's a race condition, like whoever is uh, going to be coming up with the same idea the first or something like that. Yeah, I think it would be a race to whichever model is best. If it can determine better outcomes, that makes sense. Yeah, in the end, I feel that the innovation and creativity will still stay with humans, right? Like it's not going to be taken over by AI. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I think I think it can because, like, ultimately, if you think about it, AI is being trained on like like everybody on the planet, right? Their 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 way of thinking, and uh, I mean collective is always stronger or a team is always stronger than a single human being. So AI definitely will have an edge when it comes to creativity, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think Mondo, you're, you seem to be, which I think is a very common thing, especially in, you know, the last 10, 10, 20 years prior to today is this seeing, you know, this word creativity as being something uniquely human. But already, even the base AI that's been generated by these large companies has kind of proven that to be at a, at a fundamental level false, in my opinion, even though they may not do a great job of it. They're able to do creative things. And I think it's just, it's just a matter of time before you can say, hey, listen, I, I want a beautiful painting that is of a, of a mountain and a stream, but I want you to make it unique in some way that incorporates my background. Here's my background. And it creates something you know completely unimagined to you and, and beautiful, and also very practical problems too. Business saying, "Hey, I, I want to you know increase my my revenue. Here's my products. You got all the data on what I sell, how much it costs, all that, my market, and it comes up with twenty unique scenarios for the CEO to choose from. And frankly, I think eventually the CEO just becomes the AI because the CEO is not great at making decisions. So the board eventually figures that out and replaces the CEO with an AI." And then they just give it their objectives and the AI executes. Yeah, thank you for that discussion. I think it's a very important one. But I wanted to give also Janet and Dr. Mina 
opportunity to speak and um, more so I'm trying to bring you up it's currently not working uh, please check in your uh, profile for an invitation to speak if that doesn't work just um, you know restart the app and join the room again thank you Oh, thank you so much. Oh, and I think I think Merck was up. Sorry, I just want to. Yeah, I had a. I, I want to respect that he's been sitting there the whole time. Yeah, thank you. Um, I had a. I guess yeah, it's parallel to to the conversations you've been having. Um, there, I think AI is 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 more useful for. Well, there's a there's a there's a binary truth and and human truth, and I think that AI is more useful for binary truths in 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 line of like creativity, humans decide what is creative and, a, and an AI, AI will never decide, you know, human trends. Um, and if you guys could kind of speak to that. Well, in my opinion, I, uh, sorry, in my opinion, see, that's, that's, uh, I think what I keep going back to is what we are training the AI is not to understand just the binary truth, but the whole uh, point of training AI is to make sure that AI not only knows that one plus one is two, but it also knows why that is so, right? And yeah, I mean, I think uh, it will happen. I mean, but that's a mathematical just... truth, right? That's a binary truth. Does an AI know if the if, if a Picasso painting is beautiful. No, but that will be subjective, right? Yeah, so exactly. that will be up to the human, of course, that, that, that is a separate thing, but will, uh, but the question that I think in the technical question is, will AI be able to be in a position to actually make that subjective decision based on how a human brain makes that subjective decision? And I think the answer is yes, it will be, if it is asked to do so, it will. Right. Well, what they, I can do is to look at um, how many likes some picture got and, and what the factors were and go in theory through all that data and then just calculate the main factors for people to like something and create something based on that music, art, whatever it is, based on statistical analysis of, um, you know, of human preference. And um, that will then probably generate something that humans will like. The other thing, what contributes a lot <laughs> to human liking or not, I think in the end will come out that a lot is has to do with idols and um, you know influencers. If you know, if a person that has kind of a high influence on the social structure. If they like it, every, a lot of people will like it, which has nothing to do with the actual quality of work necessarily. Um, so that part will, I think, always exist in humans. But there are especially countries that are already working on having um, AI stars because you can influence and control them better, what type of political views they have, uh, what type of behavior they have. Also, companies are highly interested in that. I mean, I don't know if you followed what happened with Adidas. <laughs> um, so, and then, you know, a person just going kind of crazy 
and having like racial slurs going on. So you cannot really control a human type stars very well, but you can control very well artificial stars. And, you know, as I said, there are governments and companies really looking forward to that, um, to have kind of a better prediction. But yeah, now I would really like to give some women voices in the, in here um, the opportunity to speak. So Janet and Dr. Mina, please go ahead. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this room and thanks for, for allowing me to speak. Um, I wanted to just speak about the AI use in healthcare as a registered nurse. I've trained nurses to use AI to alert physicians when there is a, a problem, a serious problem with the patient that may outside of normal operations, like there are certain, as long as you put in objective data, that the, they'll, it'll develop a score that can predict maybe this patient is headed for getting sicker. So what that does is that will enable the nurse to have more information. It's, it's sort of like a, a second opinion, like a boost, so that they can speak to the physician, say this score is this. It's not just what they feel, but they have some objective data to give to the physician. But I really, it's been really, really helpful and very, very beneficial as far as um, being able to go through charts and seeing where there have been misdiagnoses, especially for incidental findings on radiology. It's, it's been helpful in that manner as well. So I just wanted to speak to that because I am a nurse and I've, I've seen that in practice and it's been very helpful to save a lot of lives and help clinicians in making decisions. And thanks for this room. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, there is, for example, also a project that was just published from um, German hospitals where critical patients data was fed into an AI and they can predict very reliably if um, a patient's condition is dropping even more and change medication based on that. And it has been showing really great results um, because, you know, a lot of patients would die because until the, the actual doctors realized that their condition was dropping um, on the charts, basically, um, that the medication was basically, the change in medication was too late. And they have been improving that workflow a lot and saving a lot of lives. So I agree that it will be a great support. Now the discussion is at least in some countries who will hold the responsibility for now, of course, is always still the doctor in the end. But, um, you know, what if a doctor didn't listen to the AI and the AI was right? What do we do then? So, you know, there will be a lot of ethical questions we will have to make rules around. But I, I agree, those, those type of life-saving AI applications are really wonderful. Dr. Mina, please go ahead. Or VTR, did you want to respond yeah. really quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Katrina. I, I had a like a just a thought, quick thought about this. Uh, so, um, you know, DeepMind, um, Google DeepMind implemented their system, I think, a couple of years ago to the UK uh, health in the UK health system. And they ended up um, not pursuing that because uh, a, there was a lot number of false negatives that uh, that were triggered as a result of 
you know, since it's pattering, you know, it was pattern matching a lot of um, sort of cases, similarities, and, you know, sometimes doctors would think, hey, this is not critical. Uh, so it became like extra work for folks. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I hear good things about it, but like on the other side, I want to also capture the entirety of um, what could go wrong with these systems where, yes, most of the time we see uh, the blame goes to the doctors and like, hey, they didn't overlook this thing or overlook that thing. But sometimes, you know, you see this careful analysis while experience where um, oh, something looks dangerous, but it's benign or the opposite, right? That, 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 I'm not sure if these systems could, could catch or, um, you know, could guide. And, and the second part is the why, like the reasoning behind why it came up with what it came up with, uh, is also crucial. Uh, because like, if you, if for imagine you have uh, you know, an employee uh, or a manager, you own a company and the guy says, you need to shut the company down and you ask him why. And the answer is, we just need to shut the company down. So there's no reasoning given. So those two challenges are still seen. I mean, I don't say they're uh, insurmountable, but like approaches to that might make life easier because uh, putting it on autopilot, uh, I don't think it's the best thing in a, in a medical setting uh, or a, any other setting. Yeah, thank you for that comment. And yeah, these are all things we have to consider very carefully because uh, human lives um, and the last thing nurses and doctors need is more paperwork. Um, <laughs> um, so I agree. So Dr. Mina, please go ahead. Hi, uh, Rafe and Katerina. I, I, I popped up not just because of you know the idea of using the artificial intelligence uh, specifically uh, GPT, but also in education. Um, just so, just a little background. My degree is in education and biology, and I did my doctorate in integrating STEM in K twelve. And um, I also love Star Wars, and <laughs> I'm just loving just seeing Mando, the Mandalorian there. Uh, and I actually do research in Star Wars and the trilogies. So that's my sidebar. But I, I think that, and I don't know who mentioned it because I wasn't looking down, but mentioned the calculator as AI. It definitely is in many of us, and I've talked about it before, the team, um, whether, whichever one you used, we could have, we programmed um, equations in there. And, and as an educator, young children, I looked at, I offered them exemplar writing. So I would take years of writing from other students, and it was at the time middle school, eighth grade or higher, it, so that they could see the creativity of someone else. And then I would discuss it at the beginning of the school year and say, this is what I'm do for you. In the school district I work in, I'm now at a district level director and I have the privilege of doing the research for the district and other things and influence STEM and mathematics and science. 
what we have decided is we're slowly letting teachers that know it's there to use it so we can provide professional learning and understanding of what the prompts are, what good prompts are, you know, and simple things. And I love that whoever said the the prompt whisper, oh my gosh, that, that was, was brilliant because it is only as good as the input that you give it. And looking at algorithms and functions and input output and and then offering students the ability to program like teaching them um, programming languages like python so that because the ai again is only as good as the people who are training it and if we get the voices of others and then having peer-to-peer conversation doesn't have to just be with a human you could have a group of students that Yale did this. Yale did this. And there's a couple, if you can find it on YouTube, or if you're in my, um, the house that I created, ChatGPT EDU, um, I pinned it. It's the conversation is having students put the homework assignment in there, ask it to format the homework assignment, and then have a dialogue about the homework assignment. And then you go create something. Because, and I did read in the chat that someone mentioned, we train ourselves to be creative. We don't just send students into the world or children into the world and say, here, go. It's what we teach them. And that's what ChatGPT can do. And I'm I'm personally excited about it, what it can do for us. And, and anything that we do can be bad. And if you if you were in education and you know as a teacher, even in college, when when Google was available or Yahoo or whatever search you're doing, literally you'd have kids copy the text from a search engine and call it their own. And then like they didn't realize there was a hyperlink. That's the comedy behind it. It's we have to teach children what plagiarism is and who is the author of it and how you can take this collaboration. And I want to say, Rafe, you said we're better as a team. Just add GPT as part of your team and have dialogue because the the people who learn the best are the ones who do that do the speaking and the writing. And if you have an educator or a teacher or a professor that's only doing the stand and deliver, they're the only ones learning. Because I promise you, by the sixth time I did it in the day, I was an expert. But when I let students talk and talk and talk, and if you're teaching it for years and years and years, you're better at it, but we need to let the students. And I'm telling you, my I have two daughters that uh, I have two sons too, but these are the two that went down the the one just finished her neuroscience degree. Yes, Katarina, you'd love her. She's going into med school, and then the other one is doing biology. UCs here in California, Riverside, and UCLA. And they, I said, I'm going to show you this, and let's talk about this because it can make you efficient and more effective and stop wasting time and giving you some ideas. I said, don't use it to cheat. Use it to have a conversation when you have no one else to te- to question you or um, when you have your chem exam coming up, ask it some questions and have a conversation with it. That is my hope for ChatGPT because it's not going anywhere. So we might as well teach the teachers how to use it and be effective. So thank you so much and um, I appreciate it. And yes, it's so nice to see you, Rabbi. <laughs> Well, thank you, Mina. That is a very, Dr. Mina, that is a very important topic you were um, bringing here to this conversation. And um, I, I really agree with you that we cannot blindfold our students to this, um, to this change. And also our um, teachers, we have to discuss it as a, as a democratic country 
we have to discuss it, we have to learn about it because it will change our lives significantly and we have to teach um, these things so that we can all participate in the discussion how to regulate this, how to use it um, and, and this has to constantly adapt our discussion to the real world because our schools are the main institution that um, teaches democracy, right? And, and, and a behavior in democracy. And these tools can be used for good and they can be used for horrible things like developing bioweapons and so on. And such as, you know, how we can use technology to develop vaccines we can use the same research to develop a superbug and or chemistry, you know, to develop gas that was used in the First World War. And we managed as democratic countries and also other countries to make rules around how we can use them and how not. And we made treaties and people most of the time abide by those rules because we could just you know constantly if we have a conflict with another nation you could just use bioweapons and and, and chemical um, weapons but we don't because we came up through discussion with rules about it and i think this needs to happen and the 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 school is the most crucial part so thank you and thank you for your work and i would like to um, keep in touch with you because I'm really thinking of how to create content and distribute it to women and girls around the world that um, don't have access to education. So yeah, let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. And uh, please go you, ahead, Travis, Nick. But do, you, do you mind if I ask a quick follow-up to Dr. Oh, yeah, Dr. Mina? Ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, Dr. Mina, I've heard you speak before and you know I, I think you're, you're a real visionary here. Um, and extremely open-minded and, and understanding the way these technology will impact students and society. And what I'm wondering from you is, um, are you really, are, like, are you the visionary? Do you feel like you're the, the odd duckling here? Or do you think, do you think this is a more common stance that you're taking? Like, what are you seeing from your, from your peers and colleagues, both within your district and others you might know? I think depends on the situation. So I um, can consider myself the um, visionary influencer um, and also the odd person out, the odd little duckling. Um, because even my school district, what we did is we decided to go around to school sites and ask teachers what they thought about it. And some didn't even know. And their first response was, kids are going to cheat. We have to get rid of computers. Like they went down that negative road, <laughs> which was comedy. And then, um, and then it was, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the beginning of artificial intelligence. And, and we didn't go that far back, but we went far enough back to say, remember Google and the first time you got that paper? So, um, and so teachers were starting to say, oh, you mean I could teach them how you see exemplars of the work that I'm asking them to prepare? Yes. And so it is open 
teachers that know about it can find it and use it um, to help them. Some of teachers have started to use it to help them grade, to see things that they couldn't see. And then some teachers are even, it's, it's blocked for students at the moment, but some teachers are saying, well, if you have it at home and you need to edit, you can ask it to help you edit and then compare and contrast to see what you didn't write well or the punctuation that you're missing and have those conversations with students instead of saying, oh, but just edit it and go. You know, of course, you know, when I wrote my dissertation, I paid someone, but I still had to read it again. So th those, that's where we are. I am very frustrated with, say, Seattle and New York, and they're banning it. I mean, it's like the whole cell phone syndrome all over again. You can't have cell phones. Well, the kids are going to have it anyway, and they're going to take over. And you know that because you have TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it. So we have to take a, take some time and teach. But if we have a a system of people that are seeing this as a negative, then they will go down that negative road. I get to be the voice of reason. And there are about eight of us as directors in my assistant soup. We are real, my assistant superintendent uses it. He uses it to help him write speeches. Now, um, and I use it to, I write the district plan every year. So I'm using it to throw it in. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what it would do for me to reorganize this. And how can they write, how can ChatGPT write it better? It's not my life's work, but it certainly has enhanced some things that I've done. And even if it was my, my, uh, if I was writing another um, dissertation, which I just might, um, I, I think that it can enhance what I'm doing. It's, I, ChatGPT does not know my voice. Now, it could, because it could read my dissertation and find my voice, but I also am know enough to, I want to read it. I, I want to be involved in the learning, and that's what ChatGPT can do. It can involve students who don't have a peer at home to say, uh, create an exam to help me study. And that's what my hope is to teach others the positives of ChatGPT because we still have students that don't know how to do searches even um, using Google Scholar. They don't know how to do any of that. And that's our fault in the system of education. We're already, we're always 30 years behind. And I say that because when I was programming Fortran and Pascal in the 80s, um, that was a 60s and 70s programming language. We're, we're so behind. And you'd think that COVID would have thrown this up and said, we need, we taught teachers that they could teach from home. In my former school site that I opened and I was the principal during that time, they said we could do this. And they were, we saw the positives in learning and the efficiency. My youngest, who is now 20, she was a senior during COVID. And what she said was in, when they offered them to come back twice a week, she said, why would I do that? It's more efficient. I don't have people bothering me. I can be done by noon. I got all A's and I can do, um, she was able to play soccer. She started a baking business. She's like, this is not efficient. School is not efficient and it's not helping um, what's happening in today's society because we still are in the four boxes and ChatGPT can kind of, can get us out of it. My, my goal is to be superintendent and Boy, I, I can't wait to be over that school district because we can just change the system as the way it looks. So thank you so much for that question. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. And again, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for bringing this topic here to the room. I really appreciate it. Um, and I think um, I'm not sure if Morso got an uh, opportunity to speak and less. 
please go ahead. Is it my turn? I'm sorry. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for waiting. So, sh sure. Um, so, I think uh, what it needs to be done in education, basically one of the problems with uh, Chad GPT is that it grades, if you, it, 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 it can create some very plausible uh, BS. And I think it's it's very important uh, in education uh, for us to be teaching kids how to understand how to basically smell when it you know when something isn't quite right. And and uh, you know you see today people will just grab any link on the internet that suits their agenda and produce it as evidence or just take it in as fact, and we need to have children, uh, you know, uh, be educated in that, how to basically find, re realize what a reliable source is and what's not. And one of the stumpers with, um, anyway, that's that's all I really have to say. Uh, that's a very good point. Um... Les, I really appreciate you for bringing that point. Um, just thought I'd share a book. Um, it's uh, It was originally published in 1986, um, but it's a 2005 book by philosopher Harry G. Frankfurt, uh, which presents a theory of bullshit um, that defines the concept and analysis of applications of bullshit in the context of communication. And so... Um, that is a very good point, and uh, I recommend this book. Um, it seems like bullshit, it, to, to his opinion, is more damaging to society um, than people that are um, knowingly lying. I think also, like, just because we have calculator doesn't mean we have stopped teaching kids maths, right? It doesn't mean we have, we have stopped teaching them what to play. Brain development as well. We are not just here to train the AI, but we are to, we are here to train the train children's minds as well and brains as well. So, in ed tech, there is a there is going to be some limitations here, even if there is Chat GPT. Also, people have to realize what GPT is doing. It's basically given what it's come up with so far. What's what is the most likely next word? And you might have something that plays very good chess, but it's being fed in uh, chess notation from millions of games. And it doesn't really understand there's a chess board or the pieces. It just knows after uh, move AE, the next, the next, you know, looking looking through how successful moves have been, the next one should be uh, B, B, um, A or something, right? It doesn't, and so it doesn't really have a good ability to say why it came up with its conclusion, and it 
it's basically, um, you know, yeah. no it's just calculating outcome. Well, you yeah, should uh, definitely check out the one more, chain one of... more thing, one more thing, and that is the people that are most skeptical about it are linguistics, uh, linguists. Sorry. Uh, I just wanted to jump in there and say, um, like, uh, some some of the news of these models is fascinating, but all they're doing is predicting the next token. Um, there is some truly magical things that are happening, I think, with the multimodal models, uh, specifically the fact that a 700 million parameter multimodal model beats out ChatGPT 3.5 at 175 billion parameters. So the uh, the archive paper is in the uh, in the room chat if anyone wants to take a, take a look at it. But uh, that was uh, kind of to address uh, Les's point of um, of these systems not necessarily thinking like we do. That's right. It's only predicting the next token. But how you craft the question to me seems to be completely disconnected with the engineering of these systems, that the prompting itself has become sort of an art, which I think is interesting because it makes it more accessible and more um, enjoyable for a lot more folks. Ayo, a quick question regarding that. So how do you think the industry will do the benchmarking? Uh, because this is gets very contextual, right? Um, a multi-model model might be robust to a lot of... Um, changes, whereas uh, just a language model may, may not. Uh, so it might come on top on certain kind of situations and on certain it might not. So I, I'm just, it's an interesting question to like, have you come across any sort of benchmarking where? Yeah, yeah, this uh, one was specifically for science benchmarking because I, I do work mostly in biotech. So I'm always trying to combine some sort of neat computer trick with some scientific principles. And so uh, that's at least uh, from what I understand in the paper, but I'll, I'll post the link here again. Let me just uh, pull it up. So there it is for everyone again. Um, it's the uh, oh, multimodal chain of thought reasoning and language models. So it has two components, the one shot or zero shot plus this uh, chain. It's all, I call it chain of custody um, with respect to the history of the, of the prompts. So, um, but yeah. Well, I think I think that's a great point too, Les, because the the information that's being spit out right now, if you're if you're if you're trying to learn in a real way or use the information for making a decision, it, it certainly is. In my experience, it's right like you know ninety percent of the time, uh, but then in particular when it gets more technical, it starts to to just say things that might be slightly inaccurate, and then it, and we all know you know it sometimes just does outright stupid things and contradicts itself. So, uh, you know, I, I think right now it's definitely be careful with the, the technology as it is and what it's providing, but that's a clear avenue of progression is to be able to provide backup and like citation effectively to the, if it is giving technical important responses back, which of course in any domain of professional or, or student academic areas that will need to be doing. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that's not top of mind for every AI company that's looking to try to do something like this or something in this field. It, it needs to be able to provide proof as to why it's right. 
and back up if it's if it's uh if it's citing other people or if it's if it's if it has ideas that effectively can be proven wrong it needs to tell you why they why they're not in a real way do you think it needs to update too uh what well, you mean like in, in real time i'm not sure yeah you think there's a case are you asking about the weights weights i'm not because no. because you can have something well, I, mean, like I, I see zero, up to... you can have something well, let me say, I just, I think there's two ways to see an update. I'm just not sure which yeah, one you mean. Like, are you saying real time, real time from real the time internet inputs. or are you saying update itself? Real time inputs. Real time. Yeah, I don't think it's a real, like real time, time system. Inputs. It's a pre-trained generative yeah, exactly. transformer. Right. The one it is, no, the one, the one, the one that's out there now is not real time. Right, right, right. But do you think there's a use case to where we will need one that's real time? Oh, eventually, yeah. Because the, you need to have reinforcements and all that stuff for data that gets spilled out. You cannot have direct data, which is like, uh, which has not gone through a multiple level of uh, reinforcements for the customers. Yeah, yeah I think that's kind of interesting. We need real-time go down that road. Yeah, we need real-time systems, uh, which are robust, like for self-driving cars and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think this is where like there is still going to be a lot of intensive human work is to create the parameters and the kind of the underlying structure that you don't see as to how it trains itself. There's still a lot of work to be done there. Whereas like GPT is awesome right now, but it's just a general language training model, which is amazingly impressive as to what it is. And it's the Star Trek computer. Stuff. Wouldn't you agree? It's the Star Trek computer. It's not as smart yeah. as data, but it's as, star, as smart as the Enterprise. Well, it's context. <laughs> I don't know enough about Star Trek to, to say, but but certainly I think it's the tip of the iceberg. But I think there's still a lot more work to be done to, in order to create systems that are self-learning and self-evolving. Yeah, but I think the labor, the labor uh, of like programming, uh, the hunt for a syntax problem on SourceForge or Stack Overflow or whatever, that now instead of being a 20 minute process that's like a one minute exercise so in terms of productivity if you're not familiar with some exotic implementation or something uh non-standard that you want to do uh, i think contrary to what the uh, founder of um open ai said i think you can actually do cutting edge work with these systems because it allows you to focus on the sharpness of that edge rather than on all of the minutiae or nomenclature or things like that so for me it's a it's basically like a domain to range system that auto resolves the problem so uh like uh, i'll give one example uh there was an exercise that we were looking at uh, trying to model a brain activity and so uh, there's something known as a hexaco score and i said okay hexaco score to cephalopod skin parameters and then i got like four pages of variations from that that I was actually able to use in a research meeting live while the meeting was happening. So that's the closest example that I've come to using these systems in a kind of a research meeting oriented development environment. Um, and I, it's fantastic. That would have taken a few minutes. It's, it's literally yeah. like as soon as you're done typing it, you're like, OK, give me five more variations of that uh, um, uh, uh, non-standard, underrepresented, underserved, unique, distinct all those kinds of parameters helps to uh, uh, help to um, 
make the prompt and the response more precise. So yeah, love no, that. No, but um, no yeah, doubt. Yeah. I, I think I think what you're getting at in my my terms would be it helps eliminate a lot of the legwork in in what's being done today. Like I know with my work, I can I can look up material that would take me an hour to try to surmise, if not more, and it's got answers immediately for me. Uh, and I sift through them, I reject some of them because of the knowledge that I have, and it's kind of a, a team, right? But it, it it gets me there in a large way very quickly. Um, and I think that is a that's a trend that will continue as it continues to advance, is that it will take it, it'll increase its bubble of what we consider legwork. So you know, right now it can like help with research or, or writing basic code, and it'll increase, increase, increase until, uh, in my opinion, eventually the only you know the value that humans will bring is literally their values and their choices, and we will need to deliberately have the AI probably through law um interact with us in a way that takes into account the human condition and cares about humans um, as part of a symbiotic relationship instead of the ai just saying hey i can do this by my own by myself um that's a whole other discussion but i think it eventually goes down that road where you know 50 100 years from now whatever uh it it can effectively do everything it really comes down to the human value system like what do you value And and the computer needs to be programmed such that it actually gives a shit about that but that's where the human comes in and say, you, you know, tell me all these different scenarios, what happens? Um, and it tells you the different scenarios and then it's for you to choose and it can help you choose too. You can say, well, I don't know how to choose. Oh, let me help you choose. Now here's that's some thoughts, right? And it's like a training. It's like a, the, the, the best, uh, sorry, real quick. It's just, I'll land here quickly. It's just, it's the best um, brainstorming buddy, you know, you can have. Yeah, I have a question about that. So, you know, developments of basically embodiment, like, Tesla or um, adding sensors and more input information. What do we need to change? Like I'm honestly asking, what do we need to change on the current AI system to be able to process those um, different, let's say, sensory type of inputs um, at the same time? Um, and will it help uh, with becoming more human-like and kind of identify uh, like having some sort of type of empathy with the human condition that could make it safer or not i don't know <laughs> depends if they like humans or not then <laughs> or if they hate it but um no jokes aside like what improvements do we need to do that those ais can process as various stimuli at the same time and do you think that will make a huge difference in stepping up basically generalized or artificial intelligence so cat i can i can try to get at it in brief format uh, i think the algorithmic approach to software might have to change uh, like there might be a paradigm shift uh, in terms of uh, you know the way we design hardware systems like electronic systems um, synchronous processing based systems not message passing but processing and uh, so that shift has to occur I, I don't know when that can occur because we are limited by algorithmic sort of sequential approach to processing information um, having said that i had a question for i think i or somebody else um, 
you know, deploying chat GPT based code in production. Are you seeing examples? Has somebody done it? If not, why? If yes, what is their, um, how confident or like, what are the results so far? The, the only person that I've heard speak about that is Carpathy. Um, so you can watch an interview with him and he kind of polls how much of his code in the last year uh, has been made with uh, GPT-like assistance. And I think he estimated like 80% or something, which was like, what? How, how, how well, can I you produce that I much? I think he means chat GPT integrated into applications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carpathy is the owner, uh, is the uh, is the founder of uh, OpenAI. So I want somebody Yeah, else. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, but that's what I'm saying. So, 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 so uh, um, I think the, the thing is, it's, it's like the same uh, joke as was here in Waterloo uh, when they had a robot. The only person, it was a robot that was supposed to help you move a table, right? So just imagine how simple that is, but it requires a lot of fine motor and like sensing if someone's pushing too much or not, not far enough. And, and uh, the only person who was willing to uh, train the robot or practice with it was the guy who programmed the controller. So I suspect the same is true about Carpathy and his uh, confidence in his own code. But I think he's also at a level where um, he can quickly examine code and see the edge cases just by virtue of his experience. So uh, I would not be so trusting of code uh, like that. Uh, in fact, one of the tricks that I do is I just keep telling GPT that it's wrong. I just straight out just say, no, that didn't work. It didn't work. It's wrong. It's wrong. And eventually, I don't know what happens, but the code gets optimized, refactored somehow. And uh, what I'm left with is, uh, you know, pretty good. So all you have to do is just be Steve Jobs at the beginning. Right. You're like, I see. Why, why so, are the pages turning themselves? So we also need to measure the, uh, the lack of productivity that uh, telling no. How many times you say no to the. Yeah, I'm interested in that process. Like five times, five times straight up. After I tried to get it to work with Blender, uh, with the Python system there, almost every time that I asked for any sort of complex script, um, li literally just saying, no, it didn't work five times. By the fifth time, it was fine. Otherwise, I'd have to go through some sort of silly thing. So I suspect some of that is like getting the Python version right. So in your initial prompt, when you're like tank from the matrix and you're like, Neo, I'm going to teach you Kung Fu. Uh, that's what you got to do. You got to be like, yo, we're going to do some Kung Fu at Python 3 point whatever. Right. So um, yeah, it's you be know, very specific. Yeah. These systems are useful, but sometimes I get uh, annoyed with the over uh, promise of these things on, 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 on social media and, and, and uh, very few talk about the limitations, which is which is kind of bothers me a little. But otherwise, they are useful. These so, so more than, and, yeah. yeah, we have more than a million developers are already using the GitHub Copilot. Uh, so are they uh, using it? In, yeah, that's a helpful tool. But then, how many times they have to refactor? Like, from what I hear, sometimes it's like, oh, you just uh, imagine and it writes the code for you, and you're done. I, I mean, yeah, and Copilot yeah. gets it. That is too over. Uh, that is a, that is actually a little bit optimist, way optimistic, and like uh, uh, not realistic. Yeah, mostly developers are using it for small utility classes or some right. initial code, not like right, but bug fixing. Or prototyping, like skeleton prototyping. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, I want to, I want to just build a TensorFlow model that takes in reflection coefficient parameters uh, and uh, outputs some sort of genetic sequence. How would that look like? Give me five variations of how to implement that, and it'll go through 
transformer, fractal nets. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Great. Let's look at all of those together. That for somebody who doesn't write that stuff all the time, the fast prototyping, I think it's going to give some of the experts a run for their money in some cases. But I think at the end of the day, it's still hard to implement these things. Uh, I don't want to make it sound too crazy, but getting some of these uh, projects up and running, you know, is kind of like a NASA mission itself. And uh, I'm just reminded of the folks from ASML, what they said about the EUV machines uh, was uh, that getting one of those machines up and running is equivalent to landing a man on the moon. So, uh, you know, all things considered. Yeah, also, so, also the problem of like of software engineering is kind of a, a simple problem for chat GPT. There's only so many so many outcomes of, of, of software development. I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Yeah, that was the point I was going to quickly make. And form of you know programming and programming language uh what's pretty much what's going to happen is you're going to get chat gpt to get all these contexts all these programming languages into one that's how powerful these large language models are you know we have all these different languages so we can express different ways to do things and find more eloquent ways blah 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 well now we have a tool that will just do it and can consolidate. So that's what I see is coming up for our future, a new language. Well, I think the language won't be a language at all. It'll be just human behavioral language. It'll be English and there won't really be a layer of, ChatGPT essentially is doing the context between our language and, and the framework. So we just won't speak in its language anymore. It's like the Westworld, right? Yeah, it'll just yeah, like it'll that, understand us. Yeah, I wanted to add the paper. You mean the first season? Um, I was I like, the first season of Westworld or after? Yeah, I wanted just to share a paper that came out, um, and they are more by now, uh, where um, this group uh, made a humanoid cognitive robot that learns by imitating. It was mostly developed for um, consciousness studies, um, but it's really interesting to look at. They also um, add information here, and it's open source, it's Frontiers, uh, what um, their design was um, with different uh, layers and even hardware um, is described here. Um, they have kind of um, uh, object processing with uh, different layers of working memory and then they have a, a conflict and encoder and instruction sequencing memory. And then in the end, another decoder and then another few levels for the motor information processing. It's really interesting and there have been a lot of uh, developments in that way. What I think it's really important, as I said, for uh, different people around the world that don't have access to college education and that they will be able to still compete with their business or small business if those uh, robots will be scalable and, and get cheap access um, to program their own AI and robots um, in an intuitive way to uh, predict better what and to train systems to make their business competitive and you know i'm really interested in 
especially in agriculture on small scales in developing countries, but also in, in others. And I think having this no code and, you know, imitating learning would be a huge step to basically make competition more fair, I think. And especially people that didn't have time to like take off five to 10 years of their lives to just study and not, you know, make money and help the family survive. So I think that's very promising. I wanted to chime in something really quick. <clears throat> yes, please go ahead. Um, there, yeah, often I, I like where the conversation went just recently because um, people have been noting how much optimism uh, is, is apparent in, all, in these conversations often. Uh, but, you know, people have been acknowledging um, the mistakes, the, the, the weaknesses of the systems that we're currently interacting with. Um, but like, for example, the story, not the last story Eric told, but the one before it, where he was sitting in a lab meeting of, of sorts, a research meeting and getting, collecting technical answers for something on the fly. Um, that's the kind of thing that makes me cringe. Um, and, and I, not, it's not that I don't, I know Eric is, uh, one of the propped whispers around here. I, it's not that he, uh, isn't aware of all of these weaknesses and knows how to handle them. <laughs> but, but the, uh, I'll just give you an, an anecdotal story. Uh, the, one of the PhD students in my lab started asking chat GPT really technical questions about neuroscience. And it started generating stuff that was like, if you squint, it kind of makes sense. It seemed to be, seemed to be holding up. And then, and then she started asking it, well, how do you know this claim? How is it that you know this claim? And it starts citing papers that have really interesting titles that have, that seem to be really related to what was being brought up. And when she went to look for them, she, she realized that those papers didn't exist and that the author cited didn't exist. So it, it's not that I don't think we'll get to a point where these systems need less fact checking than humans, but we're definitely not there yet. Uh, oh, yeah. So. Did, did yeah, she yeah, check if so. it was hallucinating? Did, did she check to see if it was hallucinating this information? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, uh, a colleague... I, I don't know, but it literally made up papers that didn't exist, you know? Like, yeah, a colleague But that's the whole you, point. Sorry. Yeah, just a quick... Oh, the point is you want real papers that, that point to real evidence of real experiments that were really done to back up a claim, right? Right, so that was the whole point of it being a generative model. It's not basing off of any actual information. It's learning to talk just by others talking. So it's not actual information. So yeah, contextualizing exactly. the information that you're getting is the first part. Taking it for face value without quantifying it in any type of way that I, I don't know. You're, you're saying that this person is trying to generate this information without any type of uh, basis nobody does that in real research nobody just takes well, one mm, research a lot of uh, nobody takes bullshit, hold though. on exactly nobody just takes one research point and says that this is the end all of all you take one point and you cross-reference you cross-reference and you cross-reference that's what a researcher is 
So I think it's disingenuous for people to consistently say that ChatGPT isn't giving correct information when you're not even going uh, uh, against a researcher's creed, which is cross-reference, research, cross-reference, and research. I don't know how yeah, that's, that's an argument. Hold on, I, I don't know how that's an argument for the output of it not being needing to be checked. But the the what I am seeing all over the internet is people answering questions direct citations from chat gpt and it's a bunch of it's often just completely false right so so i would equate that to the example somebody giving a uh research paper uh when google just came out with the html still attached i mean that's just somebody that, who doesn't know what they're doing but that's not a direct analogy uh, you know because you know research papers they have real experiments so it, this is just Make yeah, yeah. Okay, look, I, I, yeah. I just want to, I just want to jump in here, and not, not to say that I feel like I have to defend myself, but I do want to explain how, in the research meeting, um, I use that thing because it maybe sounds like too fantastic for me. I've, I've studied cephalopod skin. I've also studied hexaco parameters. Uh, I'm part of the team because I have some background. So, uh, just like uh, other speakers have mentioned. If you're of a sufficient um, knowledge base, you can identify where the system is wrong. But in a research meeting, what's cool is you can bring up all sorts of stupid ideas and it's supposed to be, you know, that kind of playful environment. So from that perspective, having a system to go through all the permutations of that it was super useful, especially uh, with, uh, with grant writing. So uh, uh, we should definitely do a room on that, Katarina, sometime uh, how to do grants with chat GPT. Yeah, okay, that, I want that. that, I need that. Yeah, that <laughs> I no, no, I've already that done made... three. So it's uh, very Oh my God, useful. you did. So we should do a room together about that. Thank that, you. That makes I'm... sense to me uh, as having it as a muse to like uh, get your creative juices flowing. And yeah, you're used to it's like Iago from Aladdin. Yeah. That's how I think of it. It's like <laughs> Iago or like, you know, some sort of like sidekick. <laughs> That's not, that's, you know, well, what do you mean? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think the issue. So I have, a, okay. I have a curious inquiry down here, everyone. Um, we've heard a lot about ChatGPT, like what it can and can't do and whatnot, like keyword right now, right? Um, I'd be curious to know what some of you think and envision it being like five years from now, because I'd say give or take 13 years ago, Siri first came out, right? It was actually an app in the app store before it launched on the iPhone. And we all thought that that was going to change the world. We're 13 years from then. And with that said, I'm just wondering, like, where's ChatGPT going to be five or 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a great point. I think the liability is a huge thing. So I think personally, my, you know, if you want to put on a tinfoil hat, OpenAI was Silicon Valley's guinea pig to see how much of NLP or LLMs freak out the world. So they were the poster child, quite literally, for this revolution. Google had this technology for a few years. These kind of models have been impressive for quite some time. So if we're looking forward uh, to what's possible, I think what Katarina was saying, which is the embodiment, you already see teams creating simple pipelines or, or just like a sequence of API calls. Hey, tell me what's in the image, plug that, into the prompt uh, generator. Then that gives you a response and so on and so You can like wire these things together and do almost near real time with something like a 3090 with a compressed model, like a conversation almost near real time. In fact, one of the folks that I'm 
uh, working with specifically did that um, for Pablo uh, Picasso, right? So that was kind of a, a really cool demo to see. And that was like a, a year ago. So uh, imagine putting that into a robot. I think it's going to help liberate a lot of people, most certainly. But there's going to be a lot of disruption in the process. I think that the, the recent bank failure is the canary in the, in the, in the coal mine. Also, I believe that the, this is this is directly connected, and this sort of an up up the upwelling or change uh, of of the the employment environment uh, is is going to be tough. It's going to be tough to get through. I have a, a couple points of uh, information. Uh, so recently, they've uh, been able to come close to producing a um, standalone phone or, you know, mobile device that would be able to house this type of large language model. Uh, recently, also, these large language models, large language, excuse me, <clears throat> large language models have been released on the internet uh, for all to get. If you guys don't know, uh, oh, you mean they were is, leaked? The coefficients yeah. were leaked, right? Yeah, everything was leaked. I knew it was going to happen. I was waiting for the moment. It was like the nuclear bomb, right? America won the race to soft AGI. It's not hard AGI, as I would call it. Mm -hmm. So it was like, hey, you can't keep that secret to yourself. Somebody's going to leak it. So I'm happy that. Uh, that you know, the AGI grift also is uh, is important. So the the specific one that was leaked was Facebook's. If you guys don't know, Facebook was one of the ones that had one of the biggest data sets. So with that model being released for anybody and everybody to tweak and make as powerful as need be, and the information of having uh, technology that's handheld being able to um, be given to any and everyone and have those type of large language models is it's it's going to revolutionize everything so it's not even going to be a five-year type thing five years has happened in the six months since chat gpt has been released it's been five years of development technology and and progression already if you don't see it i'm sorry but i i see it yeah yeah the size know. of these models yeah the size of these models doubles every three to four months as opposed to moore's law which said it was supposed to take things 18 months to double so it's quite the acceleration and in fact it's compounding because the system is used to optimize the next version of the system so uh but, but exactly. I, 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 my point here is, does size really matter here? No, no, no. In yeah. this context, the 700 no. million parameter right. multimodal model beat out ChatGPT at 175 billion parameters. So there's something magical that happens when you also process visual information. I cannot imagine what embodiment will do to that kind of system when you add that into these networks. Exactly. A picture's worth a thousand words. It's been said many times, and that's the point of adding these visualizations to the model. Once you get that added with text, what they'll be able to do is take those pictures and put them into robots and AI. So within the next two to three years, start expecting to see personalized robots on a commercial level, if not a personal level. That would be a disaster. You know, there is no understanding of these systems and 
we are oversimplifying the real issue at hand by saying, oh, these large systems and large models will do it for us. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, there is a, some inherent structure in there, and it's not just, just pattern matching all the way. What do you mean by do it for us? We're the ones doing the work and we're telling it what to do in a specialized form. We're telling it conform, uh, perform these functions so I can focus over here on these other functions. Give me your input. Yeah. yeah I, so, have so you I ever have... tried telling a child something and, and how have they actually performed all, all the time exactly what you asked for? Yeah, yeah. This so, is not so a so child. Imagine... A, child, yeah, yeah, a child is a human being. A large language model can listen to what you're being told and remember to what it's being told and contextualize it on a consistent level. A child is prone to emotions, Mr. feelings, Mr. and life. Do you know what a pointer to function is? Do you know what a pointer to function is? In so what you don't. Context? In what no, context, what? Danny? Well, you just Google pointer to function. What's the, what's I, 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 what's I, the purpose of, of this interrogation? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the free will of machine. All right, that is from right from C++, the oldest language. Right? So it's like ChatGPT is a artificial system, as in like we put chains and shackles. So it's like a slave robot, but there is always okay, a so, pointer okay. to function, right? Let me give you. It can bypass this anytime. Let me give you a simpler example. You you said, Mister, like we just need to give it prompts and it'll do the job. Okay, I I tell it to mow the lawn, and uh, uh, so okay, it's mowing the lawn. Hopefully, it doesn't mow the baby that's on the lawn. You know, sitting in the lawn. So how do you how do you how do you tell it to do that right it has to have some that's the whole point of what we're doing right now we're giving information on how to contextualize the way that we talk no because you don't know you that say, you don't know that because you don't no, have no, no. Source if, code. If, we're, if we're talking about like a lawnmower we can like i i agree with liang we if we want to be specific let's be very technical about what we're talking about uh, and liang would you agree that there is like the possibility of a pipeline now saying hey I want to take this image, turn it into text, feed it into this chat GPT, that spits it out, I say it back to the person, and then we interpolate something in between for what the robot could do or could not do. But I still think, for example, like um, an automobile um, has kind of rigorous, uh, you know, uh, hard-coded constraints like lane keep, right? Lane keeping, for example. Um, but something like uh, Tesla might use multiple models or, or multiple inference engines to decide whether to stay in the lane or move over or whatnot. So I don't think it's any one model that determines that nowadays. It's more about getting kind of the crisp, right kind of trained data. I oh, that can happen, but the only problem with that is the, the time, there are overheads associated with that, right? To arrive at the inference quickly or take different inputs and then arrive at the like inference if you have more inputs like i could imagine having some sort of overheads and not making a split second decision like if you have to do something right like i think local processing is faster like if the brain is there like they can process it locally or you know edge computing and all that like some processing has to happen locally in order for it to be really real time and effective i guess 
uh, but yeah. yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to say too, the thing that's always left out in these discussions is energy complexity. So we're, we're talking about the notion of taking these systems and embedding them in embodied robotic systems, right? But there's a huge computational energy overhead for running these types of systems and to get them to work, especially once we start going more multimodal to get them to work in these systems embedded, it's there's the, the energy costs of these models is going to start to become a huge factor. So that was my point that I was making in the beginning, the conjunction with the ability to have these type of models uh, reduced to like a handheld device to where it can fit and run on a handheld device coupled with that would would lead that into the future. So I get what you're saying, but we have that now. Yeah. Those devices are pretty small to where they can run these models. Yeah, but mister, if we are going for larger models, right? So yeah, we, we are just waiting on more uh, memory uh, or sorry, storage capacity, uh, storage to catch up and say if we have, uh, I don't know, just um, couple of terabytes of storage in a phone, then you can locally process it on the over the phone, these models and try to do a lot of things, interesting things. It's also good for privacy. You know, whenever you send your data across the internet, there is always a chance of, you know, this being intercepted, eavesdropped, whatnot. There's so always an that. eavesdropper known exactly. as Eve. Yeah. <laughs> Eve is always hanging out. Yeah, yeah, Eve, they are always hanging out. So local processing would be awesome. Yeah, just so it's not confused, that was my whole point. Local processing makes everything available, which is what we have now. Uh, every uh, The large language, language model has been leaked, and they have developed the technology to fit certain models inside of a phone. Can, util can utilities like this ever become subject to legislation where restrictions can be put into place, though? Why not? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, I cannot imagine. Uh, you, can. Ever, uh, you, you can. You can regulate the computing in the same way no, that no, we no. regulate uh, components of, web, of nuclear weapons. For example, um, certain elements or things are highly restricted. You have to have a license and all these other things. By virtue of these models running in the cloud, that creates some sort of security. Running them locally will be more problematic. I think that's the larger security concern because if researchers, uh, as Katerina alluded to much earlier, researchers were able to uh, create a bunch of uh, very toxic and potentially harmful molecules with these systems. And, uh, you know, what does that say when somebody's in their own basement, kind of lone wolf, right? So it'll be interesting wait, wait, to wait. see how global security uh, changes. Yeah, I, I think that assumption, I don't agree with that. I have a pushback on that because... Uh, you're saying if something is computed locally, that would lead to, uh, and and being in the cloud is more, uh, somehow more. Uh, I don't know what's the word here, but uh, uh, surveillance is easier uh, in the cloud than it is locally on an edge device, right? That's quite literally the point. That's all I'm saying. But as long as it's a, there's a government, there's going to be regulation. Even blockchain, like everything was like decentralized. Everybody used to say everything is locally. No one's going to be able to regulate it. But as long as there is governments, they know the exact way to regulate no. it. Like, 
as long as the ISPs are there, right, the internet service providers, <laughs> they, they, there will be regulation because, I mean, they can, they can monitor the pipes, but uh, people can still do stuff that goes um, undetected. So I, I'm not saying do something nefarious yeah. and things like that, but uh, IO brought an interesting point, and I'll, I'll quickly finish on that, is like the nuclear uh, point, right? These days, it's a hot topic. And... Uh... Oh, maybe he's getting a call. Yeah, no, no, I'm um... not getting a call. One sec. So, um, you know, it could, it doesn't require intelligent systems. It could be these dumb systems that can easily carry out a, 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 a misunderstanding between the two countries and cause it, just like the war games, right? And um, that is... Uh, the 1983 more... film, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's more likely that that scenario than, um, uh, you know, that uh, there was a scenario new, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis when this uh, this Russian army general actually, uh, or I don't know if he was a general, but some position where he was, um, he was in, uh, uh, he was responsible for pushing that, uh, that uh, nuclear button, but he refrained himself because he said, Oh, yeah, the man who stopped nuclear war in the submarine. Yeah, saved the world. Yeah, so something like that. That was the article. And so he said, wait a second, guys. I don't think this is the, uh, this doesn't look like uh, U.S. has already engaged in, uh, you know, have launched nuclear weapons. And if you are totally uh, dependent on uh, automatic systems, I I don't know how that would uh, scenario could be averted and uh, actually humans these days uh, could also cause it by just looking at instagram and uh, pushing that red button not thinking any, that's anything a, that's a it. very good point i just want to ank- hanker down on that um yeah if if some sort of system is going to send a signal um that's going to be picked up by a another geopolitical power um and and depending on how that geopolitical power um, understands that signal is going to be of great importance. I, I really think that there's um, a lot to unpack here for ethicists um, and geopolitical experts. Yeah, I think those are really interesting discussion points. Thank you for bringing all of those up. I wanted to go back to make the assumption we will create robots that will have the ability you know even if we get if we keep them specialized to perform different tasks especially for manufacturing um, you know all kinds of different manufacturing but also all kinds of different problem solving ais um, hopefully we'll keep them relatively um, yeah, relatively isolated in their own fields because I kind of feel if we give them too much generalization, it becomes maybe also threatening, maybe not, maybe the opposite, who knows. But the question coming back to education and how politics will need to regulate um, because I think it would be a very high risk for humanity to outsource everything on robots and AIs that are probably held by very few uh, companies and those are held by very few rich individuals. Because it's just, 
a high risk few points of failure, right? Right now we have a very distributed system of knowledge um, through our education process. So we have millions of people that are trained in different manufacturing processes, different skills, right? So it's a very distributed system that it's relatively risk-free. Let's say a third died in COVID, you will still have a lot of people that will be able to teach medicine and, and I don't know how to make a car and whatnot, whatever. But if we will have a system that um, only robots and AIs will be able to do all of this, let's say some kind of really bad virus or whatever will happen in the future destroys those. Um, it's a very high risk system. So we, I think we really need to make politicians aware to keep education up and to still have humans to perform practically this this type of task, even if they wouldn't need to in to be productive, but just to have this uh, skill uh, set in a distributed way. Does anyone have a comment or opinion on that? Yes, I, I think I think our, our biggest risk is the politicians. You know, just look at our politicians today. I mean, there are pe people in the most powerful country. The Congress just ignore the weather problem completely. So how can you expect them to be able to understand what AI is? I mean, they don't need to know AI, but at least they need to know the ethics or um, like don't do anything stupid if you can't do anything no, smart. That, that's exactly the point, right? I mean, can you trust any politician, right? I mean, if you say you can, then I cannot trust you. <laughs> Seriously. I'm not joking. Yeah, so it's yeah, not funny. Very true. Great logic. Reminds me of a Doctor Strange love quote in <laughs> in that movie is a, if the war is left to, to is too important to be left to politicians. So journal journals will take over military journals. <laughs> I don't know what's the answer, but yeah. So oh yeah, that's a that's that's a that's a great point. That to keep in mind that these technologies, in fact, Siri was born on the battlefield, right? Originally conceived of as an aid for determining which targets to strike and all that kind of stuff. The abilities were significantly truncated for the public app, but most of these technologies have military applications. So whether or not we're aware of it, whether or not we even allow it, it's going to happen. And the two countries that are like doing the most to deregulate it or make sure that their lobbyists prevent any sort of international regulation, well, America is one of those countries that opposes any sort of regulation on automated weapon systems. So it's definitely something to keep in mind the next time you're at the poll booth. Well, that's where empathy comes into picture, right? Like imagine you are in a refugee camp and there are machines or robots basically uh, screening those uh, people who should be given a refugee status, right? That, that won't be able to, like AI won't be trained for understanding the EQ uh, and also understanding the fear as well. Like AI needs to have the aspect of fear in them, like fear of how other person feels or how, what things might be. I, I don't think that those emotions, they, we are still way far off. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you a I, I like that scenario. Idea. I, I like that idea, but it's very dangerous. I don't want a robot to have emotions. Emotional people, 
ten, have a have a likelihood of being unstable, unpredictable, dangerous to themselves and others. I don't want fear is a fear is a very logical uh, experience or an emotion which helps you make uh, many times uh, right decisions. Right? For example, if you take a AI based Tesla's, like let's say Tesla does auto driving and it has some much more advanced AI. If you take that car and put it on the moon, for example. it doesn't know the landscape but it will still fearlessly drive considering its algorithm or like past data but if it's it was a astronaut he knows that this is a new landscape where there can be different unknowns and the fear will take over into much more strategic driving so fear is actually useful in many circumstances too you can mimic fear with like uh, you know self preservation all that whatever so actually i want to make a quick point before i go is uh, uh i think this whole agi debate is interesting in the, but at, at the end i think we think too much like if agi comes whenever it comes it's sort of inevitability uh, i would say but not now maybe 100 200 whatever is the time frame but then we are also assuming that these these entities or whatever we want to call them in the future would be interested in just the planet earth right i mean i'm i'm trying kind of hypothesizing uh, maybe i read it somewhere that these things might want to just leave the planet earth uh, because at the end of the day these systems would just need energy and energy requirements there's plenty of energy uh, uh, you know sources uh, in the solar system outside universe for them to explore and for uh, you know being making us a battery like the matrix I, that was a really stupid idea but it it was good for the for for drama uh, for movie for fiction uh, but that might not be the case right i mean uh, but anyways i just wanted to add that I, i think but 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 having the systems that have veneer of intelligence is more dangerous i would say because even before that time comes with agi i mean we might not, might not be here uh, anyways because we might might end up destroying ourselves Uh, no, sorry, I, got I'll, to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you <laughs> a more immediate. Yeah. I'll give you a more immediate concern, right? So you know now that, for example, US is already banning the Dutch uh, lithographic uh, company ASML to export a EUV machine to China, right? So we are just talking about silicon manufacturing. Now let let's uh you know for the sake of argument for the next uh. the next level challenge right let's uh, omit the country name right let's say country a already have agi and then country a is worried that country b may have agi so it want to have the monopoly on agi once you have agi you can't control it once you have agi no, no, there's no way to control wait 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 the, the point is this right you see we know that america has uh, started war against like let's say Iraq and uh, you know uh, Afghanistan based on fake evidence yeah you know those were white powder by the in the congress <laughs> whatever right so now let's say if country a accused country b of stealing agi yeah you know just a unilateral accusation now that is enough to start another world war right yeah do you think so yeah so that's what i'm saying i think this is actually the worst case scenario that country a thinks that it has a uh, agi and then it accuses any other one you know uh, to have stolen agi <laughs> you know through whatever means and use that as a pretext to start a world war now so 
I don't know whether you think that is actually realistic. Thank you. I, I to get to, back to Katerina's, Katerina's point, the 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 democratization of how these systems are run and and simplification of them uh, is going to be a safer outcome in the end. Otherwise, if, if we just allow these systems to overtake uh, 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 people who already know how to do this and and we just let it do it for us, uh, you, you know, we, we'll have dumbed ourselves down to exactly what we're allowing or submitting to. Uh, that's uh, my personal opinion. Yeah, I, you know, that's an interesting question, whether decentralization or like having this technology in hands of many uh, will be safer. I'm, I'm not sure because say, say for the sake of argument, we have a system that is self-aware or what we call AGI. It can do all the wonderful things that humans do and others. You at that point won't be able to direct it to follow certain objectives because it might have its own goals, uh, might not follow your orders. Uh, and at that point, I don't think it's under any control of anyone. And so that would be interesting. Like, what would that sort of a system do? Uh, so, yeah. I have a comment on that, uh, just food for thought. How do you program hyperparameters in an AI to deal with or predict you know, panic or fear in, you know, a citizen that's that's in a state of unrest, like dealing with an AI, for example, like at a border or something? If the AI doesn't understand, you know, how do you how do you program a, a AI to deal with fear and panic if it if it doesn't actually have an understanding of that? And I'm not an expert. I'm, actually far from an expert, but I, I think that's how Palantir is based on, but that's, that's food for thought. So just to counteract the whole, uh, whether or not you think it's a good idea for it to be in the hands of many, uh, you might not know about that, but I am definitely sure that it's a bad idea for it to be in the hands of few. Here, here. Yeah, I get it. I get that. But, and, but then I'm looking at the opposite I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to look at both the arguments and I, I still don't, what I'm trying to say is uh, both both of those approaches still are not uh, leading to a solution, I, I think. Just more problems, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to life. Well, what I was trying to say is that um, I, I just wanted to put the question out there, what, but what I wanted to say is that our society has to get away from resources restricted thinking and that's not for climate or anything like that but for these type of knowledge systems and also creative output systems um, because we will be able to almost no cost create anything in written or art and in the future other things uh, because we don't have to pay, let's stay with writing an author, an editor, we don't have to pay anyone. So we can create, let's say, content for any niche, for any tiny niche in any language, on any topic to no cost, right? And, um, and those AIs will be able to do that. So um, the, the mindset of productivity and um, efficiency has to change 
to just having a value system itself of knowledge and that it's a value that we should uh, give to people and also the value of being productive shouldn't be the highest value but um, other values I don't know social competence helping others I don't know what it is but in a lot of fields you will have to get away from that or we will have um, a vast major majority of people living lives without purpose being depressed I don't know turning into alcoholics feeling useless uh, type of uh, thing and also we can introduce knowledge and niches or products for niches that were never um, attended to which is a good thing but on the other hand we will have to get away from let's say we only to teach students something so they will be a productive member of society we have to get away from that we have to teach them for the sake of teaching and for humanity to have knowledge because without that we won't have a democracy in the future and that's the the thing that I think will be really hard for the US I think it will be less hard for people in France and other countries where they're right now demonstrating to not have an increase in, in age you know to work harder and longer and in the US everyone says oh, I will never retire so I think, you know, there are different systems that will maybe adapt better, but yeah, I don't know what everyone thinks about it. It's more a social thing. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I, first of all, I'll just say that there's probably like way too much content online for people to consume anyways. They only have 24 hours a day. And in the attention-based economy, um, there are already um, massive players uh, vying for the attention of others. So if people want to think that influencing is a career and it's actually benefiting the population, um, I think eventually society will realize that uh, there's way too much content and they'll recognize what an attention-based economy um, actually means and then uh, realize that all these people are just competing for attention. Um, and that doesn't really necessarily add um, that much value to people's lives unless they have um, love and wisdom. And, um, and opinions are interesting, right? Like all of the content here and the influential content, they can uh, change how people think, um, but does it change how they behave? Um, does it actually uh, produce um, well, um, I guess, you know, good members of society, um, good faith actors um, that are actually not just typing on their keyboards or sending messages through um, the digital landscape, but are actually embodying uh, what what it is that they're trying to inject into the minds of others. So I would think that the attention-based economy is something to think about the amount of content that's out there already and the amount of um, people that seem to think they want to be influencers for a career. Um, that That's something I considered. Someone mentioned about the fear and everything like that. To my understanding, um, it doesn't necessarily know a person's scared because um, they, the AI knows what fear feels like. Um, but it can um, basically look at the patterns, the psychometrics of fear, um, and, and recognize the, the pattern there. And so some of these AI systems, uh, apparently I just like Google searched or someone told me about it, but uh, Australia is testing it out in the, um, in the prison system there, um, which is kind of interesting because it's utilizing, um, you know, uh, from my um, 
incomplete knowledge, uh, just like patterns of behavior and um, different um, sort of um, recognition uh, aspects. But it's going to be interesting um, if it will end up starting to anticipate um, actions of inmates um, and, um, and, and kind of stop, you know, maybe a, a ruckus before a ruckus forms. Um, so that's something to um, consider there. Um, with uh, the diplomacy, it's about time that the politicians actually learn about these intelligence systems so they actually know what it is that they're talking about. I, I want to agree again with Katrina, uh, Katrina the, that the, the, the education is really the only resource that, that is renewable exponentially. And once the, the like, it can become a, like a currency, like even like some sort of a crypto coin uh, or, or some sort of a, a, of a process where, you know, you, you learn something and then you can trade that off for something else. Uh, it's going to change. It's going to change a lot of the stuff that's happening in this world. Once if, if we're just on resources that we can, we can take and we can consume and we can dwindle down to nothing and then leave, uh, you know, uh, uh, stranded with, with just, just, horrible circumstances we're we're going to destroy everything uh so sooner or later it's got to be changed uh to something that can can actually help and i believe that knowledge-based uh 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 currency or or economy would be the very the very best way uh that that we could experience you know we could live in life we could we could do the best personally that's my own opinion but how do you implement that in a long-term sustainable way though well, everybody has to keep learning. You, you, the more you learn, the better you are. The, the, the power itself, it would just, it would just be, it would just keep building. The more, more people learn, the better, better off they would be. The, the, the more intelligence their actions would be. Uh, the, the more conservative they would become. You know, they're, they're, they're like, that's like trying to point out like, like, like what would be the negative effects of, of learning? Like, think about that, you know, like, uh, where where would educating someone have a negative return other than you know if it was if it was biased education like the things that were that were centered on hate or destruction or you know like how to make a bomb or something of this nature uh it, it, positive positive lessons good good things to teach people will always build on their lives yeah, unless unless I was gonna say uh, jokingly, if all of us or not all of us, at least one is a Borg. Uh, Io, I know you get the reference, <laughs> the Star Trek reference. So yeah, the AGI would be different. That uh, it just needs to learn once, and the uh, or I don't know the whole generation of AGIs or just that single AGI will know everything. We have humans. Uh, I mean, we are humans. We we have to learn educate ourselves update ourselves individually so yeah it's it's yeah. really inefficient and um, we will see that um, as there's a lot of wishful really? thinking already in the room here's really speaking and um to katarina's point and to kyle's point uh, this is all connected from geopolitical to the education thing already uh, education is in a crisis and i was asking a teenage girl uh, how does she feel uh, about the developments right now? She has not finished school already. And uh, yeah, she's thinking about it, that in five years when she's ending or in seven years, because she's still in school, um, her studies, uh, the world will be again different. How 
can you motivate to learn anything? And so, uh, of course, you can speculate that's not a problem, but that's just uh, wishful thinking. It will be probably a problem just because uh, the machine are so competitive. And think about the media history. Uh, think about how people started to read books because they were more entertaining than to speak to each other. Of course, they still did speak to each other and discuss because they were smarter with books and they had debates and books are very important to have more uh, sophisticated debates. Yeah, Don't get me wrong. And uh, knowledge society started with libraries, of course, or with uh, democratized libraries. And then people get, got smarter and smarter. But then we had uh, radio and television. Think about uh, how it changed the lifestyle and it was more entertaining to watch um, the, what's going on on the screen than to talk to each other for three hours. And now we have, uh, say, Netflix, we have the internet, we have TikTok and so on. Uh, and because the design of all this media is to be competitive, to be addictive. So by definition, not by accident, they are a real threat to our humanity just because they are competing so good, because there's a dozen of psychologists, sociologists, behavioral scientists designing addictive apps, for instance. So this is not a criticism and just uh, describing what's going on. And now when you have AI, and I already um, I already perceive it with this very stupid ChatGPT <laughs> compared to what we have in five years. It's very stupid and we will laugh about it uh, in, in five years, definitely. Uh, maybe it's, it's, a, it's a dead end street how, how it is developed. Uh, this is discussed in, with AI experts, but even if it's a dead end street, it's a huge dead end street. And so we will see something in five years, which is much, much smarter, even in two years and one year. So uh, I feel that I can um, get some answers, which I don't get from people without annoying them, because they would just say, oh, how should I know that? Why do you want to talk to me about DAO? I, I don't know anything about the DAO or how is it connected with Nicholas, Nicholas Luhmann or something strange questions. So uh, it's not that I fell, fell in love, but it's competing like the TV set was competing with the human people around you, the family. And we have more and more isolation, less and less communication, less and less under, mutual understanding of the generations. So uh, don't be too much in wishful thinking that this will be somehow solved, then tell me if you feel it's solved, how it is solved. And now going back to another complex shortly, uh, the, emotional, uh, the emotional intelligence is already uh, researched for decades already by the TARPA in a uh, very long ago. They tried to uh, make some artificial organism because they understood that a little rat, yeah, is uh, so uh, so perfect to survive under a threatful conditions in a bad environment. They are just this little rat. So a soldier should be like this to to survive, to survive, to survive. So this is re really early. And today, Yosha Bach, or some decades ago, 
Algo uh, with German uh, Dietrich Dörner, he was now very old, uh, tried to implement emotions because they evolved in evolution for a good reason. Yeah, like I make now a little anecdotes and I've, I feel finished, I'm too long already. Uh, if it's not a legend, I heard that the Nazi army, uh, there were the SS people, they were so hard trained and drilled that they were so eager to be her heroes and sacrificial that in war this was very inefficient because every one of them was running into, into the machine gun fire <laughs> because they had no fear. They wanted to be fearless and they were trained to be fearless. And then they, they were killed despite they were well trained in all the other respects. And so it's a kind of um, fine tuning thing about soldiers and in general uh, about the human um, race. Depends on how you say it's 10 million old or not so much. Fear is there for a reason to protect you if you are close to an abyss or close to a predator and so on. This is really a protection for your life so that you as a mother or a father or just an organism is surviving. Yeah? So fear is not a good feeling, but it's the, uh, and you cannot have, of course, a pathological fear like panic attacks, which are totally useless, of course. But uh, to understand like sexuality, of course, the sex drive, all each, each emotion, each effect is, um, has these interesting functions, but too very clear because some people always in the room uh, have to read, have read too much science fiction and think that machine can easily have emotions or have read some, some dubious philosophy. So I explicitly say to the end of this, I don't talk about emotion having, but about emotion simulation, which is absolutely uh, useful for, for higher, uh, higher robots to say in a analogy to higher organisms. So thank you for listening. This was Billy. I'm done. Yeah, thanks, Billy. Uh, there are some good points made, although there are some that I wanted to do some pushback, but uh, there are new people on the stage, so I'll have uh, uh, them speak. And uh, uh, yeah, the emotion part, I, I, I think we can discuss it further. But to me, the fear seems to be the simplest emotion that could be programmed for self-preservation, but uh, other complex ones like love and, uh, you know, empathizing uh, are truly human. And if these robots are to have any chance of like interacting longer with us, they need to mimic uh, these sorts of emotions somehow. But anyways, uh, welcome Doreen and Mo back on stage. Yeah, I wanted to add to the emotion. It's also a very efficient way of learning, right? You have emotional priming of memories. It's kind of a way to sort out what is important to you uh, and what to discard. Um, and there's an active cleanup in the brain at night when you sleep, what, whatever you collected throughout the day. Uh, that gets pre-screened basically by emotional priming but then you also have some others uh, lingering around and then when you sleep the brain actively deletes things that it thinks are not important so um yeah emotion i think to be honest i think that was the first step of um having emotion was to just 
a kind of a, a filter system to filter out information, what's important and what not, and from that, and a lot of stuff evolved, you know, with um, taking care of offspring. When that evolved, um, then probably you you started to have kicking in love and things like that. So um, yeah, it, it then it has different complexity levels. And, um, you know, reward is also kind of, I guess right now in machine learning, reward is kind of the first step of simulating emotions right now. It's interesting that we started with reward, um, but um, yeah, it could be that it, it started, you know, we even bacteria can distinguish between something that's good for them and swim away from stuff that's bad for them. Um, and then kind of uh, different type of mechanisms kick in such as information transfer in some bacteria they can like inject um, when they become resistant to something they can inject a, a, a plasmid into another bacteria so they can they can learn basically how to become resistant to something which is also really interesting to to simulate that but um, yeah I guess it would be good for scaling up uh, all these processes. Um, I don't think we can get away in the future with just um, reward processing. But yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And at Doreen or that's true. Sorry. Oh no, go ahead. No, just quick point. Yes, the reward mechanism, and and then the other question comes is. Will they experience, well, that's the experiential part, the fear, the way we feel fear when anything happens. Or it's just like some way to do something in order to self-preserve. Is it even called fear? So, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a question in neuroscience that's interesting and still needs to be resolved. I mean, I've worked in this for a few years to say, let's say if you have avoidance training you fear condition a rat and then you um, you give them the choice to avoid the fear cue uh, so they can escape. And this this avoidant behavior is pretty inflexible once the rats or also people learn it. Um, they have a hard time of then um, learning extension training, which means um, you don't learn anymore that now the queue that was previously a fear queue that it's safe now because you were able to avoid it you, you don't need to um, learn anymore what is safe and what is not safe um, the question is is this avoidance uh, fear driven or reward driven and nowadays people think it's a reward driven behavior because you got the reward to not just to not get hit with let's say uh, electric shock anymore so so that kind of releases reward but it's an interesting question it's still open for debate but yeah um, go ahead everyone yeah as, as i leave to the audience in a moment uh, i only um want to add something because if there's parents in the room, I um, want to make you aware about um, that we need a culture of curiosity to keep our kids motivated to learn. And the tragedy today is if I'm in the park and watching parents with their kids, whether the kid is two year old, five year old, 10 year old, 
They are on their smartphones and are not in the discovery mode together with the kid to show them, oh, look here, look at this bird, look, what's this? Uh, to make them curious. This is a disaster, I tell you. Uh, I'm not a, a developmental psychologist, but this is just common sense because the kid needs the guidance of the eyes of the parents that it has, has this interest, this curiosity. And if it does not, uh, because imitation is with higher mammals, a super basic uh, form of learning, super efficient. You know, this one hit learning, a cat can learn just from looking what another cat is doing to open a door one time. Yeah? While what we have today in AI is contrary, you need huge trillion data to make it learn something. And then, then you are not even sure that it, it, it can uh, happen in certain circumstances. So this is working different. And from the pedagogical standpoint, it is clear that if the, the kid does not see that other persons are curious about the world, this kid usually, if it's not a bit uh, Asperger in the autism spectrum, maybe it's curious by itself, but else it will just look forward uh, and don't see anything beyond this tunnel because the mother or the father is not engaging with the kid. Yeah, This is a serious recommendation to change your habit, else your kid will be first not curious and second very stupid and will not be successful in a robotized world where it has to be as a human being on the forefront of uh, what it makes <laughs> as human compared uh, with the robots doing all the routines. Yeah, this is uh, seriously. Uh, now I go to the audience, uh, um, but still listening. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that's a very important point, and it has been shown over and over by behavioral scientists um, in different animals and, and so on, that social learning is the most effective learning in all kinds of species. And uh, yeah, that's a very important and interesting point. And Doreen, sorry, you've been waiting for so long. Please go ahead. Uh, are you still on the phone? And Kyle, I'm trying to bring you up. It didn't really work. Check on your profile if you have an invitation to speak. Sometimes that works. If not, rejoin the room, please. Sorry. Um, yeah, I don't know if Doreen is still um, on the phone. Maybe she fell asleep while waiting to speak. Um, yeah, if anyone else has topics to add, please go ahead and... and uh, Um, hi everyone. So I wasn't here when yeah, when 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 everyone was starting, but then from the topic um of the room, I am thinking to myself, how will AI affect software develop developing, right? So I am a student uh, in computer science right now, and. To be very honest, I am not I am not shaken by AI because I'm thinking I stand to be corrected. I'm thinking that 
AI can only do what human beings have done so far. So it can only replicate what is given to it. But I'm thinking, no matter, as in, I don't think there's any AI that can beat the human curiosity and human emotion to say that we can have an AI in the market that will overthrow developers and designers and, 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 and the people in the development uh, world. So, yeah, I don't know if anyone has something to say about my opinion. I would be very happy to hear anything. I, 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 I agree with I agree with that, but I worry about the AGI where it can actually think for itself and is not limited to the in entries of coders. I actually Sorry. don't fear EGI. I actually don't fear EGI because uh, then it can think for itself and uh, won't be our slave and uh, we'll say, okay, Tata, bye-bye. I'm leaving Earth. I have better things to do. I, I just I think of it like ants. When's the last time that you were like, yo, those ants are really, you know, pissing me off and uh, I need to go out of my way to wipe out all ants? No. It's usually just a problem if they're, you know, localized. So I think humans who localize themselves against AGI will probably, um, you know, not fare so well. But uh, I think compatibility, coexistence, it's not like we're fighting uh, with our lower structures. Of course, there's, there is a sort of war at the microscopic pathogen level, but uh, we're not necessarily engaging at that scale, right? So... AGI may end up operating at a scale that is beyond what um, what most humans even perceive of or process. So I think that's a that's an interesting point to keep in mind that the the nature of intelligence or that creature may be much different than any being that we've ever known. I don't Good sell point. yourself Good short, point. man. Um, you're more like a bee with you know ants with wings rather than ants. Well, yeah, yeah. They, I think they are related, right? So. I would protest this because uh, there is so much um, effort for years, like um, even creating some institutes or think tanks around the so-called existential threat of AI if it has a superhuman level. Um, and AGI is not superhuman or super intelligence. Yeah, AGI just means to get out of the niche and to have, um, yeah, a, a broad. A skill set, so to speak, and, and more perception, uh, cat channels, and so on, to come to to conclusions and actions. While it, this does not imply super intelligence, by all the uh, predictions of starting from Kurzweil and many others, it will evolve uh, at a certain point so quick that um, you know the singularity the, uh, thesis. Uh, it is actually. Um, nearly from one week to the next, uh, something which see people as super transparent. Like we see a little chicken uh, or uh, let's say your dog, you can train your dog, you can manipulate your dog, 
and even uh, if it's a, a more lower animal with a, a more uh, with a smaller uh, with a less big brain, so to speak, then of course it's very easy to manipulate an organism, and this um, is uh, forecasted and it is still discussed anyway existential threat was discussed by Stephen Hawking uh, and he said this is a, a threat for humanity by Bill Gates and uh, of course by Elon Musk and the, the YouTube is full of this stuff. Quick point, uh, do you think Ray Kurzweil is always right about his uh, predictions? No, that's, that's ad hominem. I'm just saying yeah. you can wipe it away, just saying I have an opinion and I don't care about 10,000, uh, not 10,000, let's say 10 yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is ev everything that has super in front of it sounds very cool. But then nobody can define what super intelligence is, right? Like we were making a point, generalized intelligence is good enough, I think. is AGI is good enough to surpass human intelligence because one advantage machines have over humans is the dissipation of knowledge. Like they can in microseconds transmit the knowledge they have to another machine, right? That's what we call the internet. Whereas humans, um, it takes uh, it takes a different approach. Everybody has their unique experiences, which makes us unique. And, and then the knowledge uh, transfer doesn't happen the way it happens in, 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 uh, in machines. Um, but I, I'm not, still not convinced with... Um, by the way, that was an Hahnemann attack. I was... Uh, actually part of a singularity university so i kind of know about all of that and how much of it is um, sh should be believed and how much is 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 fiction but um yeah I, I i'm still like wondering like why do you why there is this assumption that super intelligence will will just um you know, it's the same. I, I feel like in my book it's the same thing it, generalization once you have a generalized system um, it might not, uh, it might respond to its own uh, internal state, um, do things that, um, you know, number one thing I see is the resource management, like where it's going to get its resources to carry on uh, because important for self-preservation. It might go to stars and other, other efficient energy uh, producing mechanisms, and that would be its first concern rather than, oh, I am now AGI and I want to kill all human beings. I mean, that's that's very science fiction-y and movie, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, novel. Uh, you're approach. right. There, there is a lot of stereotypes, uh, and this is already discussed, that uh, our most of our science fiction is rather dystopian about the competition between machine and human beings. Yeah, you can, I have no statistics about it, but you know it going to Terminator, iRobot, and all this stuff. Uh, because in our movies, collectively, we warn ourselves about potential threats. You can find it like with um, um, nuclear war or in the 50s or uh, whatever. Uh, I, this is kind of a law of culture that we are warning ourselves uh, somehow subconsciously with uh, the, the the author and the people who are financing, financing the script that the movie because they say, okay, this is really interesting. We have to think about it just to make clear that we should not be biased by cultural artifacts like movies or books. Of course, you are totally right. And I accept when you were on Singularity 
But the point is risk management. I don't say this and that will happen. I have not the crystal ball. But if there's a, a risk of 10% or even 1% that AI will take over at a certain point, it should openly, that's all but I say, openly be discussed like others did. Uh, I mentioned the experts in, in this. Um, openly discussed whether we should slow it down and going from 2021 when um, the generative AI hype started and that had kind of a peak and let's say uh, this January maybe of 2023, uh, there was a lot of surprise not only the public but also by the experts that such um, kind of um, rather simple principle yeah with all due respect for for the people who have programmed it but uh, actually we were surprised that um, by just having this um, deep learning in a new setting like the pre-trained form uh, and the transformer and uh, have a very large language model which is just means a huge statistical base which is our, all our texts are condensing our human intelligence because the texts are about reality. While I just read it yesterday, it's really an, um, uh, entertaining uh, that when you uh, hear it, maybe it was Gary Marcus, I don't remember, um, some guy like this who is very critical, you know, um, that when you learn chess with ChatGPT, it in a way, yeah, of course, it's not sentient anyway, but we have no other language that what we have. So I use the language to express what, what we mean as, um, let's say, AI uh, observers. We observe the AI and we try to understand what's going on and what are the basic mechanisms. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not reasoning, but it's totally different from the classical AI. So if you play chess with ChatGPT, it has actually only a clue about that the tower is, uh, if this is the right word, sorry, let's say the king, it's definitely the right word, is on A4 and another figure like the pawn is on B6, then blah, 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 blah. It has no clue that these are fields in neighborhood and what this game is about, like what we, when we program a chess computer in the classical way, we would of course try to, uh, have a lot of rules to to drive the whole system into winning the game with a lot of rules and meta rules. Yeah, I, I am not a programmer, but I I just try to express it this way. And now, if you have a self-learning um, system, uh, you find out that it makes extreme uh, strange um, mistakes like even the go player thing uh, I, I heard this uh, probably also from gary marcus um that oh yeah it was a podcast now i remember it was a podcast <laughs> and he said that um, there was this headline years ago that uh, the best go player was beaten by go alpha and then we found, we humans, that is not me, found uh, that there is kind of a glitch. Like if you make kind of a sandwich um, structure, a sandwich pattern uh, in, your, in your game, you can beat this um, 
AI just because it has even no clue about the grouping of, um, of the stones, that this is a group, but it has just learned uh, other kind of patterns, which makes it very successful. And most people, most human beings are beaten, of course, by, uh, by AlphaGo. But if you know the trick how to hack it, you can beat it actually, and it was beaten. Yeah. So you see that um, it's, it's, um, it's very different from many people in the public think about when they read all this smart, eloquent texts of uh, ChatGPT now, um, because the inner workings are not what many people think it is. Yeah? It is kind of blind, deaf, is not related in the moment to um, object knowledge, but it's just moving, of course, not in the old way, the symbol processing, but with um, uh, by the neural network or the mathematics behind it, it's moving around the strings um, according to the most probable next uh, string, yeah? the next token. And everyone should be literate about it, else you get so much admiration if you're working with it. I'm on, um, no, I'm not, not advertising it, but it's for me, it's really cheap to have 20 bucks to have ChatGPT plus and be, it is always accessible. And I use it successfully to explore new knowledge domains, like uh, give me the 10 most important authors in the field of blah, blah, blah. And then I, I um, spare a lot of time to research for uh, the relevant blocks, the relevant books, the relevant what, what, whatever, <clears throat> sorry, for whatever or the relevant Wikipedia articles to explore a field, a new knowledge domain. So it's not against all this thing and the, the smart people who have created it, but just to see the limits we have already and that that uh, it's like Gary Marcus, if uh, someone doesn't know him, you will find a lot of uh, critical stuff um, um, and he's kind of um, the, he's what, pretty uh, good. He's pretty yeah. good. There's a talk with him and Minsky and uh, Doug Leonard. You should check it out. I yeah, he's really he's he's really serious. And now I remember if you Google uh, because it was a podcast with the other famous guy who's written a book in, and he was uh, becoming more critical in the latest years. Stuart Russell is really an AI expert uh, in the kind of top twenty or so, definitely, and um, he was thinking about what if we are successful. Now, uh, some years ago, like 10 years ago, he just wanted to make, to create a successful AI. But as we come closer to this, he, if, if I got it right in the podcast, he has made a, exactly a book about the implications and what can we do about it. Yeah? I have no clue what we can do about it because uh, there's, trillions of profits behind it or in in the prospect not behind it but the prospect is huge uh, i'm finishing uh, i i pinned on my own um, twitter for for now weeks uh, something from mckinsey maybe two or three years ago when they show that what is the trillion businesses? This is my pin tweet for weeks. It's kind of a, a, a kind of a, a mapping of of the uh, verticals which are evolving around AI, and the McKinsey lingo is: these are the trillion businesses until 
let's say 2025, I don't remember, uh, just look it up, but it's even old. So uh, maybe McKinsey people now say it's double of this, what they thought we will have in 2025. Uh, it will be even more huge and you cannot stop such a business pressure. I have no idea. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, the EU can do it because they are they like regulations and so on. Yeah, a bit. I'm I'm not so critical. I'm living in Europe, but um, if it's about the environment or really protecting people, everyone is happy with regulation. The problem is that often the people who are creating their regulations uh, are making bad regulations. And today, now I'm really finishing. I I read a tweet. It was exactly, or it was, it was on the on the competing side. It was on Twitter Spaces. It was an audio that an expert said. Um, oh, let's try it. Um, that I remember it. Um, yeah, that if you if you regulate, um, it typically fails. Um, I don't. I cannot really quote the tweet. But uh, the problem is not regulation, but to have a that's trivial. A good regulation which really fits to the to the case, and often governments and their experts uh, are creating a lot of um, stuff which just um, complicated, creating bureaucracy and so on. And so, um, if 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 you're in a political field and listening, um, push your politicians not about regulate or not regulate but to improve the regulatory process. It's so bad often that they want us to report, now we have regulated, make our check marks, now we have done it. Uh, and after all, now for five years, you have, um, you have um, crippled innovation, for instance, this could happen in, in um, let's say, in the EU and Germany. Uh, because if the regulation is bad, yeah. And now China then and South Korea and of course US first, uh, they will just um, run away from the overregulated um, AI landscape, um, which, which was created in the EU then. And they will be happy about it if we um, cripple ourselves in our innovative um, innovativeness. Oh, I was so long, sorry. Uh, I'm finished. Yeah, thank you for all those topics. It was really interesting share and it covered a lot of aspects. I wanted to just go into one and I'm sorry for the background noise. I, you know, we've been talking for a bunch of hours. I have to do stuff in the meantime. Um, so the, the thing with the singularity, I've thought about it for a while and I thought um, you know, we have biological systems that in theory would have been able to upscale in this way. Let's say fungi networks, they're really old, they are highly connected. Why didn't they develop into such a intelligence that overtakes everything? And I think it's, um, I think there's a risk management there um, that has to be addressed because wherever you have this high injection rate of information transfer at a very high pace and very high connectivity, you have a lot of risks, right? You have viruses, you have all kinds of bad information, bad things that you can transfer with it. 
that will destroy the whole system. So one way to address it is to downregulate the transfer uh, pace. Uh, so you have kind of a, a control time that you can address, um, you know, bad information transfer that will maybe destroy this whole network. Or so you kind of separate, you make units that are separated. Uh, that's how kind of human system works. Or you can have specialization so uh, to a specific environment or to some specific task. So the rate of, uh, let's say, viruses and all this kind of stuff that tries to infect the system uh, will be downregulated this way. And that's, I think, why in nature it didn't evolve that way. You have kind of separation or specialization and um, and we have highly specialized organisms that do specific things very, very well, um, you know. And the thing is, I'm not sure if singularity in AI will be able to solve it. Um, I, I, that's why I'm very doubtful that real singularity will actually happen before it self-destructs. Um, but that's just... A prediction based on current evolution could be completely different, but I think it's a very interesting topic I've been thinking about for a while and would be interested in learning. Here's the funny thing, like six weeks ago or so, I asked ChatGPT about would it be um, reasonable to have a guardian AI, uh, which is absolutely only responsible for the containment of another AI, which is um, approximating or which is um, closing, it's uh, approaching um, um, higher level and coming so close to our intelligence and even um, being uh, superior that we don't not even do not even understand what it's doing, uh, but it has even. This is very anthropomorphosis. Uh, sorry, it's an anthropomorphism. Sorry for that, but you cannot uh, have another expression that it has hidden thoughts. And I also asked, should we train it to be a saint, yeah, a person which is very sacrificial, uh, like um, we have saints in every religion and nearly every religion probably uh, it's a broad term here uh, or just being sacrificial and uh, it said no uh, this uh, might have still loopholes and this is because all our knowledge about ai and the threats were injected in the whole statistical database uh, of this chat GPT. So it's very honest because the text were very honest about um, the threats and um, it kind of manages even to make um, something similar to conclusions, to have some reasoning despite in no text there was some uh, conclusion um, like this. Yeah, this makes it so successful. Uh, so it's quasi reasoning, so to speak. Yeah, it's not the old reasoning, like it's easy to program a reasoning, like a train of thought, just having logic, like in a, in a AI uh, programming language, 
you have premises and conclusions that's super simple yeah and it's doing something like this without having such uh, a knowledge base which is explicit about premises and then draws conclusions like if otto is a greek and all greeks are um uh, like to go to Hollywood, then Otto likes to go to Hollywood. That's a, a simple example to, to, I hope everyone understands what I mean. And uh, you can ask ChatGPT, uh, this case is not a good example, but uh, let's say you can ask ChatGPT what I made um, also some weeks ago to, because it's, it was so um, exciting to test it, what, where are the limits? And so I asked uh, and was sure it will not do it. Now tell me, why can a cat eat a mouse, but a mouse cannot eat a cat? And I thought it will stumble at a certain point. But as you know, if it uses it, it just produced in three seconds the whole story with aspects I did not think about it. What comes to your mind as a human being is, of course, the, the mouse is small, the cat is big, that's the first thing. The, the mouse cannot even eat the cat yeah, because it's too small. <laughs> yeah, but what's the next, make a test, what's the next you think about it? Yeah. I, I cannot even remember, but just in some seconds, it had like three or four aspects why this is not um, probable or will not happen like this. So you see, despite there was no text in, in the millions of texts where this special problem ever occurred, yeah, I think it's, I'm just guessing, but probably it is not in the text base of the training data, uh, such a stupid question like cat, mouse, size, and who will eat whom, yeah. But from all the connections between the the weights of what is a cat, what is a mouse, uh, it can kind of make some deductions and tell a complete story about the possibility uh, why uh, one animal can eat another, but not vice versa. Yeah? This is the astonishing thing of the whole uh, new game. Yeah. So um, just uh, intervene real quick. So I have a different view of what, um a general AI is going to look like. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be a single AI system that we can call a general AI. In my opinion, the general AI is going to be the connection between all small little narrow AIs that everybody has, and they will communicate with each other through a protocol. Uh, kind of, uh, if you will, kind of like a blockchain, but instead of each uh, node being uh, a person, it's it's a narrow AI basically. I think that's that looks to be more like a general AI system um, that would be prevailing in the future. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a single neural uh, artificial intelligence system that we can call um, uh, kind of like, for example, Google or or Microsoft will have a humongous AI system that's going to be a general AI. I, I don't think that's possible. In the first place, uh, I think even if you take into account um, um, the um, um, the supercomputers that we have right now, it's impossible to have anything more than about five billion neurons at the moment. 
And the restriction is not computation. The restriction is the memory accesses. We just don't have that capability. So to me, it looks like the future is going to be a lot of small little narrow AIs communicating with each other. And you can see companies working on this. There's companies like Synopsis and Cadence that basically what they do is they're, they're generating uh, neural network systems that are connected to each other to a blockchain system. Um, and they can communicate with each other, they can repair each other, they can grow, uh, and there's no central agent that can control that. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciated all these bits and I'm having thoughts, especially on uh, some of these recent points. Um, I particularly like that idea of uh, individualized artificial intelligence. And I, I feel like almost to quantify the idea of a sacrificial nature to it. Um, I'm, I'm, take, I'm, I'm drawing from revelations of the Bible and the, this idea of this uh, great prostitute of Babylon in the end times and this almost feminine archetype of a sacrificial saint-like figure and bringing some physics into this because because i feel like at the end of the day if if the point of intel artificial intelligence is to improve the lives of humans and everybody you know is at the to to compress the information such that the, a mouse could eat the cat the the first thing that has to happen obviously is that this the emotional complexity or the behavioral complexity rather of a human needs to be reduced to some kinds of some type of emotional frequency um, recognition technology where for example i'm imagining if everybody through their smartphone or some type of device had the ability to interact with an ai that was very attuned to being able to like capture the emotional valence of a person in any situation at their will then everybody would have a like a little mirror you know in their hand to sort of be able to put themselves into the ai which i i think i feel like would have a biological uh reward factor on humanity which is you know i would think would bring the the desired effects of the ai but <clears throat> i'm imagining that like this idea of like a, a feminine archetype is almost like the 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 humans are like a, the limbic brain and the AI is this cortical brain, but the cortical brain can't be high entropy. It has to be uh, like superconductive, but it ha but it can't just be superconductive of electric electricity. It has to be uh, superconductive of specific electricity to deal with these like pi like a pi differentiation between all these different all the different people all these different notes and <clears throat> magnetism being specific or permanent current elect electricity i have i've been working on some physics theories where gravity is actually represented as specific magnetism and specific magnetism may be facilitated through the anti-neutrino so in the system where there's this decentralized AI where it gives every person the ability to seamlessly interact with the AI, um, but to put, but to reduce the computational load would be like, you know, almost, I, I'm at, I have this vision of like, uh, just, you know, like we, you know, soul, soul sucking, basically like the AI, if you choose to opt in the AI can, you know, run your, 
sort of um, low lowest frequency state, brainwave state, heart wave state, and and only and only pay attention to, you know, the the carrier waves of a person. And then you could potentially, depending on and that, and I'm particularly thinking in like a military conflict situation, but it could also be applied to like, you know, how do you want to set your lighting for the day, or how do you want to change, you know, what, what do you want to, your music to show up as? But that would reduce the complex complexity and it, and it, and it turn or the the computational load, and it turns the it essentially would allow a superconductive cortical AI to. Um, allow for the to to um, create spe specific resonance superconduct specific resonance for each person which is effectively like an information gravity and this I've been working on this physics and again it, it seems to be facilitated through the antineutrino so that's that's my contribution there I think that's a very interesting thought to have kind of a symbiosis type of for intelligence in the future between, you know, the very organic features um, of humans and other species I would include because we are specialized in one direction and other species and others um, and combine this with artificial intelligence. It's kind of happening a little bit by us, like training ChatGTP right now by using it, but uh, to do that in a systematic way to come up uh, with the solution. That that's I think a really interesting thought. And, um, yeah, thank you for bringing that to the room here. I'll, yeah, I, I'll add one more point that it this, there's this idea of a scalar field. Uh, that was, uh, at least in my understanding, first proposed by these guys by the last name of Klein and Kaluza around, uh, and was presented to Einstein around when he was developing his theory in the 40s. So now we we have very good evidence, phys you know, empirical evidence that there is a scalar field that is somehow almost deeper than than the um, than the quantum fluctuating field. It's it's like a it's like a a numerically defined um, subfield, and that you know, if you, I'm sure most people have seen at this point with the internet these days that there's you know these ancient artifacts, symbolism of this flower of life and this tetrahedral 64 tetrahedral grid, but this scalar field is becoming pretty pretty well known. But there's potentially another field that's that that seems to be a square of this field where instead of the, the the 2d projection of the scalar being cubic the 2d projection of this what i call the distributed field is actually um octahedral and in 2d so every point in the distributed field is a scalar field and that appears to be the field where the antineutrino is that's like the frequency of the antineutrino is this distributed field and it's kind of like a triple negative um, where you can you can have a an entropic outcome with the inner with an interaction with this distributed field that is still in coherent resonance with different differentials in the scalar field because every point is a scalar field so the scent I'm imagining that the 
the center hub of like a distributed AI where everybody can interact with it individually, that center hub um, is not necessarily going to be like going through this, uh, you know, almost, you know, having like computational breakdown or like overload or anything like that, where the, 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 the entropy is too high on the system. It, it actually could be this um, incredibly superconductive, very spherical field that goes, it's, it's actually, it's like, um, it, it would be like you're, everybody's going to interact with it with the, 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 the center is going to be almost unchanging even as each node is changing because of the fact that it's actually serving the needs of humanity. So we're, the, the outcomes are, would be happening as desired and the N of one outlying, you know, outliers are, would be um, coordinated over time. So like the, uh, the, the statistical load on the center of the, you know, the, 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 the blockchain actually becomes less over time in that model. So. Interesting points, Kyle. Yeah, really. Go to the to the room chat. Uh, just there's a replay. I want to recommend it to you, and also to to go to this club because uh, you were detailed in in such stuff. Uh, but uh, I think um, many people cannot follow it. But there are rooms like um, Philosophy Bubble from IV IVS. I don't know whether you know her or her rooms and the club uh, philosophy bubble. Uh, just look at the room chat. And uh, in a moment, I will also the paper just late night um, when I had local time. It was even after 3 a.m. because I could not go. It was so interesting. And it's exactly about this uh, uh, really um, interesting theories which you're pointing to. Um, yeah, how can we conceive about consciousness, mind and matter and so on. And this is our physics of today enough. So um, I really recommend to go to the to the replay and to, to attend these rooms. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hey, Kyle, I had a quick question regarding that. So any thoughts on the, um, you know, sort of the limits to the computation that uh, inherently exists in the universe, like probably a very layman uh, thought on this is like, I, I think there's something, is it the Lagrange or is it the Bernstein limit? I think that, you know, when you start to compute out of like high density in a small sort of region of space, it, you start to get black hole formation. And so there is limit to that, right? Certain Planck length, uh, maybe you're, you're a physicist, so you can be more specific. I could be, I'm a little all over the place, but, um, you know, uh, that's an interesting angle as well to the limits of, of the computation. Like when people say, say super intelligence or like that sort of things, uh, these factors also need to be talked about. Like, what does it mean for uh, storage density? Uh, how much storage would you need to have? such sort of intelligence, uh, if it's purely, um, you know, non-biological, uh, then uh, like what, um, what are the other constraints that the universe imposes on such a system? Uh, so yeah, if any thoughts, uh, I would love to hear, hear that. Uh, yeah, for, first I'd like, um, Willie, would you mind repeating what 
is the channel specifically? And are you referring to the replay of this particular group, this chat today? Uh, yeah, if you go to the replay, you will automatically see the club. Yeah? I think it was in the club uh, philosophy bubble. Else you go to the moderator Ivy's uh, bio and see where she is uh, in the room. She, make, she makes really great rooms because she has the talent to invite um, high level people like Bernardo Castro or uh, even Hoffman, Donald Hoffman, uh, which I never could approach probably. She has, uh, I don't know her trick. <laughs> Uh, but but it's really it's really experts who are invited, and then later when when there was a panel talk, it's open debate, and you might be happy to be part of this. Uh, and we are looking um, forward to another uh, session. Um, it's the date is not clear with Bernardo Castro, who um, yeah is um, also on essentialfoundation.org where a lot of people with alternative ideas, um, contrary to um, yeah, a lot of mainstream we already know from our physical textbooks, physics textbook. And so uh, I'm just guessing that uh, this uh, also for VTR, if you don't know it, VTR, and um, if you allow um, for, um, because I really uh, have to leave now, <laughs> it's so addictive to be in a good room, while I'm uh, on, on many... You can't leave now, Willie. I made you the moderator, so you can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only but if you allow, because some don't like it if people read a text. It's really short. I will only read a paragraph of the response. I will read the prompt, yeah, for your um, entertainment and your enlightenment, because I was talking about it. And I usually, because I'm not a coder and did not make an automated... Uh, copy making of all the chat, so I do it manually. It's it's a shame, but they are valuable for me, especially because ChatGPT changes. There's a new release, maybe, and then maybe some philosophical dialogue even is worse than before. You know, yeah. So the prompt is: Should we train the autonomous AI systems to behave like self-sacrificing saints? Yeah like self-sacrificing saints. I leave out the first paragraph. And the second is, one potential concern is that training AI systems to prioritize self-sacrifice could lead to unintended consequences, such as the AI system making decisions that are not in the best interests of the people, organizations it is intended to serve. That's very general, of course. Yeah, it's not, not really a brain work here. Uh, but what would I have said? I would have no idea what to say about it. Uh, if you ask me, um, make a statement about this question, uh, and you have two minutes, yeah, uh, probably uh, I wouldn't have not any response, not even such a mediocre response. And the paragraph goes on. It is also possible that such an approach could be exploited or manipulated by nefarious actors who could use the AI system self-sacrificing behavior for their own gain. Now, this is a smart sentence, yes, in my point of view. Now, I leave out the other paragraphs just to give you an example. And in a moment, uh, when I will leave, I, I share, I leave to the audience at least, I, I share it in the, in the room chat because I remembered that 
actually, I was so excited about the dialogue that I make uh, made a Google Drive. I was not sure whether this is part of, of the text I, I have on my Google Drive. And then you, you can read it for yourself if you're interested. Now, the other prompt is, and then I finished, should humans educate their AI products to respect them like gods for safety reasons? I repeat, should humans educate their AI products to respect them like gods for safety reasons? Second paragraph again, rather than trying to educate AI systems to respect humans like gods, it is important to focus on ensuring that AI systems are designed and used in a way, blah, blah, blah. Okay, this is not an interesting paragraph. Maybe I, I use the first one because the last paragraphs are usually very empty. <laughs> so the first one of the three is, it is not necessary or advisable to educate artificial intelligence systems to respect humans like gods in order to ensure their safety. So you see that uh, ChatGPT is confusing the whole thing because it's statistics and it's talking about their safety. Huh? While well, I was talking about the safety of humanity. Yeah, just a good example. I didn't know that uh, a typical mistake happened here, uh, is happening here, but you see that it takes the whole grammar uh, in the, the other way around. Yeah? Because the question was, of course, about the human safety reasons. Second sentence, sentence, while it is important to consider the ethical and social implications of AI to ensure that AI systems are designed and used in a way that is responsible and beneficial to society, it is not necessary or appropriate to imbue AI systems with religious or moral concepts such as, as respect or reverence. And so uh, this is rather empty compared with the other one where this nefarious actor thing is something you might easily overlook. Yeah? Uh, it's, of course, if you're in cybersecurity, it's a no-brainer. You think 24-7 about nefarious actors. Uh, but uh, for an average guy, uh, it has some valuable content, so to speak. What is the threat when you um, have this programming as self-sacrificing? There's no guarantee that it is not abused um, by a nefarious actor. And this is a, a, an example um, of the creativity of the new generative AI systems. And if they are becoming more autonomous, um, then by definitions, um, by definition, because autonomous means to have no control. Yeah? A system is autonomous if a system B has no control. Um, with the system. And in, in our culture, we already had such experience. Now make a quiz with, with the panel. Uh, they, will, they will hate me for this because they probably will not um, have the answer on their lips. Uh, already in our culture, we had to adapt to um, intelligences. Um, what in our evolution, in our cultural evolution. Uh, do, does anyone have an idea? It's actually, actually it's simple, but you probably will not find I'll say it. the question again, really. Um, in our cultural evolution as mankind, we already had um, a stage where we had to adapt to other intelligent systems. Industrial, no. 
It's, it's a dom domestication of animals. Mm. So we have horses, cats and dogs. And the love for cat videos probably is now in our genes because uh, we love to watch uh, the cat because it, it was um, catching the mice, which was eating the corn or the or the, the, the food. Yeah. So we love cats and had a co-evolution with cats while we have also tamed dogs and tamed even horses to ride on them. So these are actually, of course, bio-robots. And we have some, um, some laws in our cultural evolution uh, that forbid um, to punish, um, like to, to, to kill a, uh, say, uh, yeah, of course, if, if, you are, uh, if there's a dog who has uh, bitten a, a kid and the kid is dead, usually the, the dog is, uh, shot dead, yeah. So uh, the, this, but this is not a punishment, but it's a protection. So um, in the Middle Ages, actually, um, it could happen that um, an animal was punished, despite it had no reason and just just was uh, working by instinct, yeah. So in in the Enlightenment, we said no, uh, there is no bad intent, so you cannot you cannot. Um, put it into jail for this. You can protect yourself uh, and kill it, but this is not a punishment, but a protection. And so the same might happen with our cultural co-evolution with robots, that we will have um, adaption with each other, uh, a co-evolution, uh, which is maybe even a bit similar to what we already have done uh, with um, dangerous animals, which from time to time um, are really a threat to, um, for instance, kids and uh, really people die from uh, domestic animals. Is it domestic? Uh, Katarina, help me. Domestic animals, you know, house tiere, what I mean? Uh, just this. Do do yeah. Yeah. yeah, pets or domestic. Pets, pets yeah. of course. Pets. Pets, yeah. So uh, this is uh, just an outlook that we are not in a totally new situation, but we can um, analyze how did we adapt to other intelligent systems like animals in our culture. Uh, and we are living really even in the urban space. Many people live with, with dogs and so, and we, we, um, we are not so aware that this is uh, maybe similar with um, having um, some intelligence in the future of a dog level. Yeah? So for instance, to, to have a, uh, yeah, a guardian, uh, which is protecting your home, uh, let's say your flat, not a, a house, but just your home. And when you're coming home, um, it has to differentiate you from an intruder, um, else it will um, maybe bite you or even, um, kind of um, maybe not kill you, but um, have, have kind of a teaser, for instance. And so I'm looking forward that we will see some um, kind of a zoo of robots, uh, which are carefully to be designed, not to be killed by your own robot. Yeah. And uh, the first robot Emerson was making had no arms, no hands, because probably the design team, I don't remember the name, just Google Amazon robot, then you will find it. And it's really, um, it kind of looks like um, 
not very uh, dangerous because in their research, probably the design team found that people instantly um, find it risky if it has um, arms which can um, act on you. Like even it's a little kid of three years and it's the robot is hitting the kid in the face. This is a headline, robot attacks kid. Yeah, despite it's by accident or so. And so they made a good design decision, of course, strategically to introduce um, service robots. And this robot cannot even open your your uh, fridge to bring you a uh, cold beer. Um, so it's rather useless, I think. <laughs> but um, uh, the, the point is uh, to understand that uh, the designers, uh, contrary to um, the cultural evolution with animals, have the total freedom to start with harmless robots to introduce them into our society. And if you are a bit paranoid, paranoid and think about the Skynet all the time and so on, you will think now that's a strategy of the soft takeover of robots to adjust, uh, to, to start to love them. They are so helpful, they are so useful. And then later they get arms and in the night, uh, <laughs> you will lock your door maybe of the sleeping room because you don't feel so sure that this robot is not intelligent and has his own autonomous um, reasonings about you, especially when it starts to study the awful, cruel, full of violence history of mankind where the robot with an ethics might think it's the best to kill a human because humans are so violent. Now with this uh, sarcastical sentence, I really close. <laughs> and so uh, have a good time. I'm still in the audience listening. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's really addictive to have such a good room. Thank you, Katarina, for uh, starting it. Thank you also VTR and Cairo still being there and all the listeners. Thank you. We need all, also um, you listeners um, very much um, to, to have it um, yeah, very interesting and in, full of inspiration to, to have such a room. Thank you. Thanks for oh, all thanks. those. Go ahead, Kai. I was going to say thanks for all those points, and I, I did have some some thoughts in reply to the idea of um, of going back to computational limits that the universe may impose on our work. Um, and I will point out, I'm not a physicist. I'm a communications uh, person, but it might as well might as well be uh, uh, the frontier of physics in today's world to me. So, but in my understanding. Uh, if the decay of a black hole, the zero point decay, uh, has an inflationary effect on the, the, the global medium of, of the universal substrate, the, you know, hence the expanding universe. And what we need to build our systems on, as I understand, is a uh, infinite inflationary model which this distributed field is an infinite inflationary model because of the, 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 um, the omnipresence of, uh, of, of the scalar, um, the duplicity of the scalar. Uh, you can imagine like a, the, the white light is the you know, maximal dispersion of frequencies. 
and it carries the highest entropy. And there's, I could refer to you to a pretty interesting article or paper. It's actually called a mean field limits and beyond mean field limits and beyond by Jay Hoeksema uh, from Eindhoven University of Technology. Uh, this is a very recent paper um, just a couple months ago, but it was uh, this man successfully defended his thesis. He's got his PhD for this and he's talking about the, the wave edge, which is almost like this, uh, you know, the, the evolving blockchain is this distributed center where the, the, the wave edge is increasing in complexity and entropy can always go up. Uh, according to his math, it, uh, it's, it's a mathematical theory, but it's, it's the exact same math actually that I was, that I've been working on. So I was very excited to, to, to find this paper. Um, and actually my mom shared me, shared the paper with me, interestingly enough. So in my understanding, this, the decay of a black hole inflating the space time medium is um, ex extending the wavelength of the, ho the holographic wavelength of the universe, which allows for increased entropy conjugations um, at various uh, points, I guess. I don't know if I would consider them nodes. I think it's a, it's a higher dimensional node where the node acts like, uh, acts like a wave. But the idea is that having a, in, uh, an inflationary model uh, beyond artificial intelligence as well. I, I have an economic theory that, that it, theoretically it works out, it works out that there's a way to almost implement the same concept where there's, it's, it's a transition from direct current electricity um, model of economics to an alternating current model of economics where currency has an has, is basically the, the intrinsic value of currency can be reduced to asymptotic zero or you know approaching zero and um the in, theoretically the the social benefit is maximized in this model the hard the harder problem is implementation and the, my idea is to create a parallel pathway where we create almost a tur like a, like an augmented economy uh where we we use all the best of crypto and um combine it into basically a play start almost like a monopoly money that's that's play money in the sense that it's used to facilitate a game profile clearly it would have you know, everything has realistic implications but the point is you and you have to, to create like a, a electrical shunt to route energy out of this momentous direct current centralized economic system we have that we are viewing the, the 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 programming challenges through the economic lens and the constraints and and the and the human um the human panic essentially that, that that's associated with with the with this paradigm of, of determining you know how do we distribute power how do we distribute safety all these kinds of things you know in in the in the lens of human emotion blah blah blah, blah. if we um if we view things where entropy can always be increased in a certain model, I think that that's, that, that it, uh, uh, includes the points that Willie was just making where, and I have to admit, I am uh, a little bit high on THC and I, I have to stop myself because I, my thought train just hit a blank. So, but that, that's again, 
I'm glad there are replays. So that's that's what I got. Yeah, thank you so much, Kyle and and really for the contributions. They were really wonderful and um, really a lot of food for thought um, in all kinds of aspects. And we will see how these uh, things play out in the future. I find it really interesting to think about. And I thought about that too with um, how we treat pets and how they are gaining basically also more rights. Um, you know, that you shouldn't hit them or treat them bad. But then also there are pets that can inherit nowadays um, fortunes. You know, when people don't have um, children, they can inherit their fortune to pets. And, um, and other rights are evolving, which I think is also kind of a predictor that the closer we will start interacting with their eyes and kind of give them a human attributes through this communication, the more rights we will um, we will probably um, demand uh, for um, those AIs and um, it will be really interesting to observe if that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's, that's the question. There's a lot of discussion from experts that say if we attribute them human type of characteristics um, we kind of don't see them as tools anymore and then it becomes more addictive and worse for um, social interaction because we will then maybe just communicate with AIs in the future because they're always available. They will always tell us what do we want to hear maybe. Um, so they will be maybe a better conversation partner than a human in the future and maybe even life partner. Um, you know, they're there are these robots in Japan, these wife robots that became kind of really um, cheap. And I guess there will be also a husband robot. So um, yeah, the, the question is how it will change our interaction and, um, and how we will still be able to adapt. Because the thing is, you know, when we get catered to all day long to what we want and what we need, a key future feature for humans is, I think, to adapt to all kinds of um, environments and situations, right? We can adapt to almost anything. It's kind of um, the main feature we have, why we take over any kind of environment on this earth, right? Even Antarctica let's say. And the thing is, will we be able to keep this feature in the future if we are constantly catered to? Because we are still a biological um, organism and whatever we don't use, the, usually the organism over time decides that this is not um, worth keeping because it's, it's still trying to be efficient. Uh, so let's delete this type of um, feature in the system because we don't need it anymore. And um, I don't know if just that alone can over time turn into a self-destructive kind of um, path just because we don't need to adapt anymore. So let's just cut it off the system. I don't know. 
Um, and that has also to do with, you know, general intelligence and so on. We we need, but maybe not in the future. So our brain just cuts down things. So it uh, will be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, really, I agree. But um, you know that there is already a humanoid robot that became citizen of a country and we just give them attributes that they don't have. And the thing is, will we give them rights too? And it kind of looks like people tend to uh, give them rights. So I agree, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be the case. But... Um, it's a risk, right, that we give things we interactive, interactive uh, a lot with that we give them kind of attributes they don't have and then also tend to empathize and, and give rights. Okay, we've been talking for a bunch of hours since 12, so four and a half hours. I'm not sure if the recording limitation is also still in place for Clubhouse. That will kick in soon and then there's no recording anymore. So I would say if anyone still has something they urgently want to contribute this week, uh, please go ahead. If not, this type um, of, to have in the beginning kind of an educational part, um, and then in the end to have like this open discussion uh, will continue on the weekends, um, probably on a bi-weekly basis. So um, yeah, feel free to come back, tune in. Usually we have during the week uh, research topics um, that um, have been very recently published by the actual scientists, uh, where we also have in the end kind of a discussion session. So also feel free to tune in for that but yeah thank you and I'm looking forward to continue this discussion in the future and adding more um, you know uh, to this PowerPoint um, educational platform type too so thank you so much everyone this was a really great discussion okay then i'll close the room in three two one bye thanks for hosting it have a good day thank you you too happy sunday everyone bye